What's up, guys? If you're on Spotify right now, please follow the show so that you don't miss any future episodes and leave a five-star review. Thank you. When you say you, you notified yourself, I mean, I could imagine what you meant by that, but take me to that moment. What, what is that? Do you say out loud? A scientist and myself looked down at that little baby, and I validated at that moment in time without anybody else telling me that he was, in fact, deceased. And I knew it at that moment in time as I held him and I looked at him. And I remember looking at my wife as she was weeping in bed and telling her, he's gone. And I handed him over to her, and we wept. I still wept today. still weep today. I still weep on his birthday every year, 24th September. So she started, literally started calling me Joseph and, you know, I've got friends from high school and, you know, decades back in my life and people still call me Joe. And it's like a shock when I hear it now, because everyone I have met for the last 25 years since I've been married uh, to my bride calls me Joseph now. And so it, it's just one of those things. And then when I got into uh, the atmosphere of Nancy Grace, it was, it's that very abbreviated thing when she, she's very staccato, you know, when she talks and, you know, it's, it's very, um, she has an economy with things many times and she just started calling me Joe Scott and that's the way it was. <laughs> hey, Joe Scott. And you don't know if, if there's anger involved in that, you don't know if there's warmth, <laughs> you don't know how that's, how that's going to come off. So she started calling me Joe Scott and everywhere, you know, I go, you know, I'll, I'll have some news anchor now that'll refer to me. Yeah. Well, we've got Joe Scott Morgan here. It's like, how the hell did you know Joe Scott? I mean, <laughs> it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird kind of thing. You know, it really is. It well, really... you, you got to get used to being a media star now. You've oh, been at now. this for like a decade. Yeah. Yeah. I have. It, it's a weird thing. I, I've, but yet I still have gotten, I've not gotten to the point where I've had it happen a couple of times. It's kind of strange, you know, when you're in a public place and people say, hey, I know you. I've seen you mm. somewhere. Uh, my wife gets it more than anybody. She'll say, somebody will say, I th aren't you married to Joseph Scott Morgan? And she's like, yeah. Oh, my God. We were watching television last <laughs> night and it came on. Yeah. There we go. Again. Yeah, it's, it's kind of it's it's it is a bit surreal. It's It's a bit weird. There's yeah. something that happens, though, with people specifically from TV, I find, where especially when you're used to seeing them with just kind of up-close shots or something like that, maybe yeah. like in the suit, they will look a little different they when do. you see them in person. Like, I knew you were walking towards me today because I'm picking you up at the airport. I know right, who right. you are. But as I'm seeing you come towards me, I'm like, looks a little different than he does on TV. Like, it's not – I wouldn't – if I were just a normal passerby, I probably wouldn't have, yeah. wouldn't have known, and I know your face. Yeah, face in the crowd. You know, you just want to blend yeah. in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I I had actually seen your face before you followed me on Twitter, like months and months ago. I was like, wait, I know this guy. And 
it's because you're all over TV, as you've been saying, and, and you're all over all these shows because of this whole wave of people being so into true crime yeah. these days. But what I really admire about you is that, you know, you keep and, and you and I, you and I were talking about this in the car on the way here. You keep at the forefront what all this amounts to at the end of the day, which is that when you're talking about these cases and these bloody homicide cases and stuff, you're talking about a life lost. You're okay. talking about people who are never going to see their family again and, right. and their family's forced to live with that. And, and you keep an air of the gravity in the situation. And so what what I'm always wondering about when I meet someone who does like a crazy job that, mm -hmm. that I'm not – I have no understanding of or that seems like something morbid is, you know, how do you how do you separate that? Like was there – did it take years before – you could walk into a case and and know that like, hey, this is my job. My job is to tell the story of what happened to this body I'm going to look at, and that's it. Versus like, oh my god, this is this is a fallen human being. Right. It's a difficult thing. I think that anybody that says that they can purely do that is lying. Um, to be blunt, uh, you you can't because you know you there there's this thing i i think that it's probably julian it's even primal i think that when when you're put in a position where even if you're seeing the dead on a daily basis which i did um as a medical legal death investigator um you you still your humanity is reflected in them mm. and I, I know that sounds you know kind of new agey but no when you're physically there in the room um you're in that space in which they indwell. If you're in a home, you know that's that's. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm making a, a a big assumption there because obviously all cases that I worked were not in homes. But when you occupy that personal space that someone indwelled in, um, one of the, one of the things I always tell my students, and I've said it in media, is that for medical legal death investigation uh, investigators and forensic scientists to a lesser degree, you're always having to try to understand the abnormal in the context of the normal. Mm. You know, it's like if you if you're in your mom's kitchen, all right? You, you associate that with with beautiful things. Hopefully, you know, uh good smells, happy memories, maybe making Thanksgiving, Christmas dinner. Yeah. You know, you, you never know, you know all those celebratory times. But can you imagine walking in and somebody's got a butcher knife buried in their neck in that same space in which celebrations have taken place? Mm. And that's what you're kind of faced with, I think, in our world. And it, it's hard. Like, even even when you're talking to hardened police officers, they they have a difficult time kind of understanding the world that I formerly inhabited uh, because we deal with all manner of deaths. It's not simply homicides. Right. It's suicides. It's accidental deaths. You know, people... Unless it's Robin Williams, you don't hear about suicides, do you? Um, you know, you look in the obituaries and papers and it'll say, died suddenly. Right. Um, and that kind of gives you, that's kind of a, um, uh, a snapshot of what our world is like. Um, you know, in a lot of places, suicides outnumber homicides two or three to one. And for me, they're more difficult. They're more difficult to, to work with because... You're not typically going to have a witness, um, but yet you still have a violent death. Um, you, I've, I found myself in 
incredible places that other other people would not have had an opportunity to go as a result of a death and as a result of my occupation as a death death investigator where um, I've gone into the very bottom of a super tanker for instance uh, moored on the side of the Mississippi River because uh, a drunk deckhand was coming back from a bar and they left one of the one of the hatches open he stepped in it and fell I don't know how many stories inside of this thing and it fortunately it had been emptied and he struck an I-beam rib on the bottom of it and no one else was going to go down there I had to go down there and you know you think about that and some of that that craziness you know particularly when I was you know really young and 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 doing this work um you know it, it you get a view of the world through a cracked lens I think uh, mm. uh, and it's 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 my lens, but it's cracked. It, it's different than everybody else's. It's unique in that sense because most people don't think about death, and death impacts everything that we do as medical legal death investigators. But you're also like such a gregarious, outward, happy, fun, go lucky guy, and you know, in our heads, we start to think someone like this has to be a little more completely introverted almost like cold towards stuff mm. but but you maintain such a great level of humanity I, I mean is that was it always that way because that's just who you were or did you have times where it was maybe early yeah. on in your career where you're like shit this is just i can't even deal with this yeah yeah i had i had a lot of dark times um many many dark times and i'm you know, I'm the way I am now. I think that this person was probably buried in there, no pun intended, uh, um, by all of the death that I witnessed. And mm-hmm. I'm listen, I'm no superstar. Uh, there, there are superstars out there that are still doing this job, even as we're chatting right now, Julian. There are people that are doing what I did. It never stops. Death never stops. It never yeah. pauses. Um. And you have to deal with it in your own way. Uh, most people are, are, there are exceptions. I think I was an exception. I stayed with it for two decades. Um, and, uh, but there are some people that can't go beyond about seven years. Because, you know, people, most of the time i found that, um, as in many areas of life, uh, death investigation is greatly influenced by the entertainment media they have this idea of what we do and who we are um and and of course that that's not the reality you know we do everything and i certainly did many things um as a death investigator everything from um from you know responding to scenes and you know doing my own investigation as an adjunct to whatever the police were doing then going back um, working in the morgue, uh, you know, participating in over 7,000 autopsies over the course of my career. And then the other big thing that I think people believe that law enforcement does is notify families. And I, I made close to 2,000 in-person death notifications. So, and that's, it's a skill set that you develop. And the, and trust me, the, the first one, the last one was just as bad as the first one. 2,000? Yeah, it just never gets easier. Never gets <sighs> easy. Sometimes you, you have to do it, which I absolutely despise. You have to do it over the phone. You try to reach out and find a local law enforcement agency to go to the home, say, make them call me 
or have them hang on the line, you stand there with them as I tell them over the phone. I have to guarantee that that individual has been notified. And then, you know, you begin to count up all the ones that you go and you visit homes and you make those notifications. And it's it's a skill set that you develop. It's not a muscle that you use a lot outside of that context. I, I've had to deal with high stress situations, you know, obviously in my personal life. Um, and I think that that kind of equipped me for some of that because I knew that, you know, it would come to an end. And, mm. you know, th- there's nothing you can do to assuage a family yeah. um, when after you've told them this. It's almost like you pull the pin on a grenade and throw it into a room and close the door behind you. A total stranger, mind you, that does this. Um, and you you just wreck their life. Um certainly at that moment in time, because it comes out of the blue. They didn't expect this to happen. You don't know these people. You don't know them. I, I don't wish people ill will. It's not my intention to do that, but someone has to do it. And I found, obviously, through my own experience, that the best way to do it is not to hem and haw about it. You have to get right to it mm. uh, because people are always keyed up. You know, they're keyed up anyway. You badge them. You know, when you show up at the door, they know that no one – generally shows up at their door with a badge and they're bringing great tidings. So you get right to it. And because there's nothing you can do to stem the, you know, the gnashing of teeth and the rending of clothing and everything else that goes on um, that accompanies that, that task. Yeah. I had Laura Spalding in here. You're just kind of making me think of her a little bit as well. She runs the company crime scene cleanup, Mm -hmm. which is now in, I think like 46 states or something like that. But she was a cop and she sometimes was required at mm-hmm. these various homicides to deal with the family or inform right. them. And what struck her early on was maybe it was one of her first times doing it. The The family or at some point a family member asked, so who are you sending to clean this up? And she looked at him, and she she had never really thought about it. But she's like, "Oh, uh, we we don't we don't send anybody right, like right. that's on you." Yeah. And so you know, you're you're coming on to sometimes as you've described some scenes earlier, like these brutal scenes in a place that you have great memories of, yeah. potentially, as a family member, and they're forced to clean it up. And I think people like you and Laura, in a lot of ways could qualify without an education for being some level of a psychiatrist because you have you have seen the most vulnerable intense moments over and over and over again from so many people across so many different backgrounds you do and that's an interesting insight i was talking to somebody not too long ago about you know how you hear a lot about the stages of grief that people go through it's uh and and they are real um you know, you get denial and anger and all these other things that come along with it. It's really weird when you first make a notification to a family, um, you will see those stages played out almost in a microcosm, like mm-hmm. in a, a millisecond where you'll have this reaction, this immediate reaction, and it, it spans. Uh, and that's evidenced for me because I've you know, I've had a variety of different reactions, responses from people. Um, I've been attacked. I've, I had one mm. lady actually fall on, the, fall on the floor, grab my ankle, and bite my leg. Um, that was a curious position to be in. 
Um, I had one lady uh, that, you know, I'd written about this uh, a few years back, and this was one of the most oddball things that ever happened to me. I was with a uh, colleague of mine. We went out to notify this lady, and her husband <clears throat> had died in the company of uh, a lady of the night. I'll put it to you that way. Mm. And actually, it was in adjacent to uh, people uh, watching this might might recall Jimmy Swaggart. Uh, and his uh, infamous romp with prostitutes down in New Orleans on Airline Highway. It was adjacent to one of the hotels that he would frequent. Who was who was Jimmy? Sorry. He was a televangelist that got caught with prostitutes. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And this this God sent them. Uh, yeah, God. <laughs> uh, and so in this this particular case, uh, I'd gone out. I'd worked the case. The guy had actually had a, an MI. It was a heart attack. And uh, while he was. Oh. In the process of, you know, engaging this young lady's services, and she came running out of the room nude um, because he um, – I don't really know what I'm allowed to say, but he – You can say whatever uh, the hell you want. <laughs> uh, he began to gasp and uh, fart and <laughs> vomit all over her simultaneously oh. and then turn purple, which is – um, what we see when somebody goes into uh, congestive failure, they're essentially they look like an eggplant, essentially from the nipple line up, and it's and you know he's got frothy cone coming out of his mouth when we got there, and we're talking to this young lady. They've gotten a sheet and wrapped it around her, and I'll never forget she was smoking this gigantic Virginia Slim cigarette, and she's sitting there and she's like shaking, and she <laughs> begins to describe the story to us, and it's horrible. I mean, it's absolutely horrible, and. You know, you can look at the guy and tell that, you know, he's not in the best of health. So we roll out to his home, which is a typical New Orleans home. It's like a two-story uh, kind of uh, adobe, not adobe, but, uh, uh, you know, plastered side home. Uh, there's another name for it. I can't remember right now at any rate. Um, and it's got the Blessed Virgin in her little hut here and sacred heart of Christ on this side of the steps. And we go up the, up the exterior stairwell to the, to the house and we knock on the door. She comes to the door uh, and it's, it's a, a, a metal cage door so that, you know, screen behind bars and she opens the interior door, pull out our badges. Uh, we need to speak to you, ma'am. And, um, you know, she didn't have like a shocked look. She said, sure, come on in, <laughs> open the door. And as soon as we walked in, <clears throat> before we could even say anything, she looks at us and says, he's dead, isn't he? Man, we need you to sit down so that we can <sighs> chat with you. He's dead, isn't he? Ma'am, can we just sit down? And she says, out of her mouth, she looks at us and says, he was with a whore, wasn't he? Oh, my God. <laughs> Ma'am, I need you to sit down. Are you the wife of so-and-so and so-and-so? Yes, that's my husband. And it's like, Julian, it's like she was sitting on a spring. When we told her, confirmed to her that her husband was, in fact, deceased, she shot up straight in the air, came off the floor, and she's a little, little bitty woman, round, um, throws her hands up in the air and she says, praise God, I'm delivered. 
<laughs> she says, so are you telling me I'm off my cross in this life? No, ma'am, I'm telling you that your husband's deceased. <laughs> and she's celebratory. She's dancing. And I've never gotten this response from anybody. Hey, guys, we're going to be dropping a bonus Patreon episode with Joseph Scott Morgan probably on Monday or Tuesday this week. He stayed for a while after we wrapped and we continued the conversation. So you can access our Patreon by hitting the link in the description. And I want to thank everyone who has already gone over there in the first couple months and supported the page because it helps support this show. Also, if you haven't already shared this episode on social media or with your friends, please take a second to do that. It is a huge, huge help. Reddit and Twitter especially gets the word out, drives people to this platform, YouTube I'm talking about in particularly, very, very well. And it helps us in the algorithm. So please continue to do that. And thank you to everyone who already has. And he, here's the kicker. Um, we... You know, we both looked at one another after this had occurred and, you know, kind of shaking our heads, thinking about it. Two weeks two weeks later, we received an invitation in a black envelope emblazoned in gold writing, inviting us to a celebration of death party. <laughs> <laughs> Still to this day, I regret that I did not attend that party. I just couldn't do it in good taste. I, I couldn't bring myself oh. to do it. But you know, he it turned out that he had, you know, he had contracted and passed on several STDs to this oh. poor woman her entire life. She'd been faithful, she would go to church, she'd pray for him. Uh, you know, all these sorts of things and of course it, you know, I guess she'd been waiting for years and years for something horrible to happen and of course it happened. He was well, he in, died doing what he loved, that, fucking a hooker. Well, there you go, you know. <laughs> I got no debate there. I mean, you know, it speaks for itself. Oh, my God. I can only imagine because the range is – I mean, that's an absurd story. I, it is I, absurd, yeah. But, you know, someone biting your 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 leg and everything. Yeah, yeah. You, you used the word primal a little bit ago, talking about something. And I think when faced with death itself, that's where, that's where we are reminded that we are animals. And there are things that, you know, even, you know, someone getting notified is, is capable of that, that it is. they – probably never imagined you know you kind of lose i don't know it's it, it's a strange thing you lose all concept of reality when you're trying to grasp the reality that something someone you love or cared about or in this case didn't care about you know is is in the case of your last story is is now gone and you can't talk with them again you can't you're yeah. never going to interact with them it's 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 something i'll probably never I don't know if any of us ever truly understand it. Uh, the The sound that notification elicits out of out of a person um, it, it's it's kind of I, I know this sounds so dramatic, but I've heard it so many times. It is this kind of guttural, deep in the stomach sound mm. that they get because they're they're. Coming to this realization, if if just for a second, that they're never going to see this person again, and I've seen this played out time and time again, and you're delivering this news to them, and and they re, I mean, and I, I've had a variety of people, you know, that will they'll react in a variety of different ways. I've had people that look like that they're suffering from catatonia, where it's, you know, they get the thousand yard stare and they're mm. they're non responsive, you know, because it's so 
numbing at that moment in time, and you cannot elicit a response to them no matter what you're saying. And here's here's something interesting that we found out uh, relative to notification of next of kin. Did you know that most of the time when you're initially talking to a family and you tell them that they have lost someone, that they only hear about 10% of what you say? Only about 10%. And you know, you hand them a card or, or do whatever, um, you know, write down your number here, call me. This is where, you know, your loved one's remains will be. We're going to do this, this, and this. And without fail, they will always call back to the office and say, look, you told us what, what was going to happen. Can you please speak to that again and tell yeah. us again? You know, I, I think that's, that's rather simplistic. People could probably understand that, but it, it's that, it's that thing. It's like getting hit in the chest with a 10 pound sledgehammer. Um, and that's probably an understatement for most people. Um, and there's, there's so much sadness that's associated with it because, uh, there's, um, they have an understanding, at least at a base level that they're, that person's never going to walk through the door again. And there's always going to be an empty chair at the table. Um, and, and that's, that's their current reality, uh, that they're going to be faced with from, from here on out yeah yeah and and knock on wood hopefully no one listening has ever had to deal with that or will ever have to deal with that let alone the two of us but you know it's also a bizarre time in a lot of ways for guys like you to be Mm -hmm. living in because you know this has been your world for 30 40 years whatever it's been long time and now over the past five to ten years especially Mm -hmm. there's like this whole genre called true crime Right. right and people it's not like we haven't been infatuated with cases for a long time we have i mean the oj trial definitely changed a lot in this country and you know people followed the ted bundy stuff back in the day like it's always been a thing but especially with the rise of the internet and social media mm-hmm. you now have i mean christ you have cases they're getting cracked by fans and i use yeah. that word deliberately there you have people who right. are like yay fans of this genre where you know, sometimes I do feel like while there is something very, very interesting about talking about this stuff, and I do talk about it with people, and I do follow some of these cases, and and in that way, am, am a follower of it. But you know, it seems like it gets desensitized, right? And it does. And uh, many people who had no previous awareness of or you know an inkling of anything to do with death investigation and certainly uh forensics um now they're acquiring knowledge um it's it's not like the days where you know you have to go and sit in a classroom or study at somebody's uh, sit at somebody's feet and learn um they they pick the stuff up on their own many times I've seen, but sometimes it loses context. If you mm. don't understand how everything kind of fits together. Um, and it is, it's intricate work. It's detailed work, but there have been cases, uh, cold cases in particular that have now been solved as a result of what they refer to, uh, as citizen detectives. They, yes. they love to use that term quite a bit. Um, and you know, I, I, I find it, uh, interesting when the term true crime is used, uh, because you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's relative. Uh, you know, what do you mean by true crime? Um, 
and you know I, we could go off in any number of directions to discuss that. But, go for it. Uh, well, I, I'm just saying uh, there's uh, you know there, it's very popular for people to say, well, you need to speak your truth. Mm. Well, your truth is not necessarily the damn reality of what's yes. going on. And just because you have this perception of what you think is reality, don't make it so. Because you don't see those hidden things. You don't see those things that these investigators see out there on a daily basis. You're not looking at lab results. You're certainly not out there standing over a maggot-infested corpse. Mm. And you do not understand the full depth and breadth of everything. So there's two sides to it. I think that there's a very positive side when you begin to think that some cases have been solved. But there are are other cases where you pe- you see people that do harm. They, they do harm to the case. They do harm to survivors that are out there, mm. the people that are left behind. I think some people oversell themselves as to what they can do. Uh, they begin to sell families who, listen, man, their currency is hope. Yeah. And there are any number of snake oil salesmen out there that will sell them false hope and tell them that, yeah, yeah, we can get this solved. And they know they're not going to solve this case no more than a man on the moon. But yet that does happen. So you have to be very, very careful in this area and try to understand what kind of impact your words are actually having. And it's, it's when you have a family that has suffered through a homicide and they don't have answers – it's almost like a homicide is occurring again. They're they're having to cycle through this, Julian. Every 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 now and then they'll get a glimmer of hope and they'll cycle through it, cycle through it, cycle through it. And now it's intensified as a result mm-hmm. of of everything that we see in the media. And you know the media will go from you know we were talking just a second ago uh, about how uh, you know we had Elise Fletcher that you know died in Memphis several months back and it was the story all over the country you know it was just everywhere this what happened morning. there uh, she she had been jogging early in the morning right off the campus of university of memphis and she just she vanished uh she's a mom um married from very wealthy family and um just vanished and she was eventually found deceased behind a house an abandoned house there in memphis and it's you know the public couldn't get enough of that case i i defy you to find one one bit of information about her in in the last couple of months you know it, it's just not going to happen cuz it's the news cycle's no different with individual cases the news cycle moves You're from right. one thing to another so why would it be different with dead people but it again to your point and it's not like you couldn't say this about some of the regular news too, when they're reporting oh, tragedies right. and stuff like that. But yeah. there are you are you are monetizing and then discarding real people. Yeah, and they are real. Um, I'll never forget uh, as <laughs> as the further down this road I go, and I'm asked to come in and and talk about forensic issues relative to these cases. I have never seen anything that really captured the country's attention like Gabby Petito. Mm, uh, and yeah. I was around for everything from Jody Arias to Trayvon Martin. That's how, you know, I kind of cut my teeth with HLN and was appearing on shows that they had and discussing these things on the news on the air. Um, you know, Jody Arias case, I remember one night we were doing her case on HLN. I think we had 4 million viewers. 
that one night on a particular day. Uh, it, this is twenty fourteen ish, yeah, 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 approximating that. Yeah. But when the Gabby Petito case hit, um, for our international listeners not there out there, can you just describe exactly what yeah, that case was? Yeah, Gabby Petito and her boyfriend Brian Laundry. Gabby had a van. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline that she had fixed up and they were, uh, they were going to set up a travel log, you know, and travel across the country and, you know, do the whole Instagram thing, you know, and show these beautiful images and they were gorgeous images and, um, and things went South on that trip. And, uh, Brian Laundrie wound up, um, killing her. He wound mm. up killing her, even though they'd been documenting their life and it seemed very, uh, uh, I don't know, surreal, I guess. Uh, kind of the world that we live in now, you know, when you have these Instagram images yes. of, of perfection. And she had this sweet little smile. I think a lot of us could identify, you know, even my wife looked at me and said, God, she looks just like our daughter when our daughter was that age. And mm. she did. Um, and, you know, you and people see that image and you you don't know what is happening. You know, the old the old adage, still waters run deep. You don't know what's going on just beneath the surface there. And, of course, she was found out in Wyoming, and uh, she'd been killed. And he left her there in the wild and then got in her van promptly, returned back to Florida, where they were from, using her credit card to facilitate that, and wound up holding up at his parents' house. And his parents weren't offering any assistance to the Petito family. So bizarre. And it was this long drama that played out, and it just captured everybody because people were invested. I think people could see her, and maybe they thought, wow, that's a life I'd like to lead, you know, the beautiful pictures. She's beautiful. They're beautiful. And then all of a sudden, the plane, you know, crashes into the side of the mountain with this thing, and it just captured. And so – we were covering that day in and day out. Um, you know, you had drama set up outside the laundry home. Uh, there's been lawsuits that have flown back and forth. Of course, Brian Laundry's body is eventually found not too, not too terribly far away from where he lived, where he, he grew up there in his parents' home with a gunshot wound to his head. Uh, his decomposing remains out in the swamp, and he leaves this note behind admitting that he had done this. And it just captured it captured the country's imagination you know well we go from that and there are a couple of blips along the path and then all of a sudden idaho hits and mm. we've got you know these four students that are um that are just butchered in in this apartment you know right off campus from the university of idaho this is and, the Kohlberger one yeah Kohlberger, brian Kohlberger. and and again you're feeding this the entire time, and you know the the news media is covering it day in and day out. Um, I mean, I'm chief among sinners. I'm there, and I'm talking about uh, the forensics behind this, what you can expect. Um, and it's a it's a never ending cycle, you know, when it comes to this, um, because it, it's people want to know about these things. I think um, 
they they want to try to understand. I think that, and I've run across this a lot throughout my career, starting down in New Orleans and eventually, you know, winding up in Atlanta as a death investigator. People want to know these things. They want to know them. They want to know what you've seen. They want to know what happened. They want to brush just enough up against it so mm. they can get a taste of it. But they they don't necessarily want to do what it would take to be out there in the middle of it. They just kind of live peripherally in this world. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I, I, it's as it's as old as time. Uh, these are our ghost stories. Uh, you know, going mm. back years and years ago, um, you know, uh, millennia. You know, we're we're sitting around in um, a campfire somewhere, and we're telling stories about things that terrify people. Um, they're part of our history. Um, you know, the uh, I've been involved in a case in Ohio now that's probably one of the most bizarre cases. It's certainly my recollection uh, uh, relative to uh, the road, the Rodens and the Wagner families, where you've got you've got eight family members that are killed all on one night in four separate locations. When was this? This happened. Uh, I know I'm going to state this wrong. I think it was 16 or 17, and mm. now the trials are just starting to happen. Well, one just finished up. Um, and uh, there's another one upcoming. You know, that that's a kind of story down in rural Ohio where you've got, you know, right at the confluence of where Kentucky and West Virginia come together. Uh, it's Appalachia. And yeah. uh, they're, they're not going to – this is something that will always haunt that community. You know, kids 50 years from now, 100 years from now, they'll tell ghost stories about this. And that's part of who we are, I think, as people. And people – they they want they want to hear about the horror of it, but they don't want to get so close to it that they that they're part and parcel of it. Well, the other underlying phenomena here is how they're decided, meaning like how certain stories are decided to be put at the forefront. I mean, unfortunately, it's a big country; people get murdered every day. Yes, right, and so there's plenty of cases that. Right here as we sit, well, maybe not because it's Saturday right now, but if it were Friday, there'd be a case somewhere getting adjudicated or finished off, whatever the official term is, for someone being convicted of a murder. And, you know, maybe some of the locals around there will be aware of it and maybe some won't, but, you know, it's not national. Whereas the case that you first got involved with the media, Jody Arias, that was national. Yes. International, right? Yes, Trayvon was. Martin shortly after that. International in a way. These cases you just referred to, the Koberger case, this one, the, is it the Pike County shooting in Ohio? Is that what you're referring to? Uh, yeah. With yeah. The wagon? Right. Mm -hmm. So these cases are they the Petito case. That that was a phenomenon that gripped the entire country because they weren't sure she was dead for a while and he was in his parents' house. So it was like a an active manhunt type thing. But you know, these are the ones we choose. And I do hear people question a lot online, and I think it's a fair, very fair question. You know, okay, we, we have these, sometimes maybe it's a cute young girl or uh, the wife of, of, a, of a husband who is the murderer or the other way around or something where it could be a bizarre one like this, like the Pike County shootings where they happen in four different places at the same time. And we hear about all these, but then, you know, someone gets gunned down in the hood. No one ever hears about Nobody. it. Nobody. 
that that's one of the reasons. And I'll you know I'll state state it boldly right now. I I refuse to talk about Jean Bonnet. Um, I'm sick to my back teeth of that case. Um, I'm sorry it happened, but you know when when I was working as a death investigator, um, I had I had a lot of little kids that died under suspicious circumstances, mm-hmm. and some of those cases remained unsolved. That's the plain truth. Yeah. But yet, you know, you have, you know, this very tragic case that occurs out in Colorado all all those years ago, and still people are writing books about it. You know, they're still talking about it. You know, and maybe that's their thing. I, I don't know, but I, I don't understand how we assign value because um, we hope, at least, I think, that everybody's loved by somebody. It, it's 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 kind of it's kind of an odd thing, you know, how producers go about choosing uh, what stories are going to make it into the cycle. Mm. And, you know, you can, there are certainly, uh, from a scientific standpoint, there are certainly uh, intellectually stimulating cases that from that have great forensic value that, uh, from my perspective, and again, I'm talking from forensics perspective that, yeah, I'd like to study and, and try to understand the science behind it a bit more, but it, um, in media, you know, it's that, it's that cycle that has to be fed, you know, constantly. Um, and, you know, listen, uh, whether, whether people want to admit it or not, um, you know, there will be another, another gruesome case that's going to capture the attention. It's always been that way. Go back to Leopold and Loeb. I mean, and even before that, you know, I mean, for years and years, um, You've got, uh, you know, people still talk about uh, Jack the Ripper. Uh, in my hometown in New Orleans, there's an infamous, uh, infamous, uh, the New Orleans axe murderer. That took place back in the 1880s, I think, and again, remains unsolved. People go back and revisit that all the time. It's this indwelling need that we have to visit, uh, to visit these cases and try to understand, I don't know, um, how somebody could do it, or maybe mm. people are just... Um, stimulated by it at some level in their brain that they they feed off of it and want to try to maybe solve it figure out the puzzle or maybe they just like the salaciousness of it i think people also want to know how like you talk about how they do it but they want to know how it happens so that they can also understand how maybe how capable they would be of it Uh, right so like not and that's a really dark thing to think about but like think about some of those husband wife cases where the wife kills the husband or husband kills the wife maybe someone's in a bad marriage and they they get encaptured by a case like this because they go well i would never kill my wife or something but would i right you know it's that it's that place people don't talk about at dinner parties no no they they really don't or if if they do it they if they do talk about it you know they'll make some uh funny quip afterwards you know to kind of dismiss it um and, and look i mean it's it's things that people enter, people entertain dark things all of the time but people are they also have an awareness of death i, I found it quite interesting for me uh, going back just for a second to making next of kin notifications, I've stated this plainly in the past as well. When I was a, a very young investigator and I'd go out and I'd notify families, families would look at me consistently, particularly with violent deaths, and they would say, did they suffer? Mm-hmm. And being 
the young, inexperienced person I would I was, I, I would I would say, oh no no no, it was quick. You know they they passed uh, very peacefully and all that sort of thing. And suddenly, I, there was something within me that I realized I was I was lying. Of course, I was yeah. lying. And I got to the point where I I would I would consistently begin to say I don't know I, I can't answer that question that's not for me to answer and that that certainly isn't and it's not for me to then who uh, does answer it I, I don't know I think that you have to arrive at that conclusion in your mind it, it, you know as as an individual relative to this loved one that you have it, it's just that's not that's not something that I am equipped to to tell them to try to um to try to buffer them from the pain that's involved with death sometimes sometimes pain and uh, grief go hand in hand you need to experience that pain um you know and it it just happens that you know I'm or me formerly um was the person in the room that would be the first point of contact relative to that and they're looking to you to try to to calm them, to try to soothe them, to try to give them some reassurance. And I, it, one other thing, I think, and there's a real essence to this. I think that sometimes when people say, did they suffer? They're also asking by extension, am I going to suffer? Uh, mm. Because they're connected biologically or, or maybe romantically or however, however it is, it's an intimate relationship, wow. you know, and you, you begin to think because there's so much tied up in the relationship with these people. And you think in many circumstances, did they suffer? I think that they're actually saying in some cases, will I suffer? You know, because just think about how destructive this, this, this news is when it arrives on their doorstep, this is intimate, it's personal, it's dirty, it's hard. And their world has been rocked. And many times, particularly when they're in an intimate relationship, that that relationship suddenly been physically severed forever yeah. and ever. Amen. And a part of them is dying. They want to know if they're going to suffer. I've never heard that before, but that is that is some deep shit right there. I, wow. I, look, you know, when you're sitting out in a car and you're sweating and you're crying after you've done this. You have a lot of thoughts about those sorts of things. Yeah. You you sit there for a moment and you think, well, I've just destroyed this person's life, you know, at, at least for the time being. You know, I'm a total stranger and I've wrecked their existence for right now. But it's your it, job to it, do yeah, that. Yeah, it, it is your job to do that. But still, you are that instrument at that moment in time. And so for me, for me as a as a death investigator, I would try to equip myself as best I could in order to perform that task. And my fallback position was always the science, to try to understand what had happened, mm. where it happened, when it happened, um, you know, all of those sorts of things. Because therein, for me, the science rested. Uh, I found peace in that. Mm. And But when death you know when death is you know your constant companion it's very difficult to find peace because you're you're always ramped up you know when that that call comes in and you have to roll out on something you know you, well you don't know you have no idea you have no idea what you're about to walk into it can be some uh grandma or grandpa that's just 
you know, peacefully passed away in their sleep or they haven't been seen in a couple of days. The child comes over, the adult child comes over and finds them. Or you might show up at a home in New Orleans on Christmas Eve and dad's gotten drunk and he's killed everybody in the house with a damn deer rifle. And you don't know how you're going to to process that because you go from zero to a hundred in just the blink of an eye. And then you might close out that case and the next thing you're on to is a suicide or a motor vehicle accident. And you try to, you know, and you kind of file these things away. And, and that's why I say with medical legal death investigation, it's not like you're working a homicide and then, you know, the body gives you the information if you're a detective that you need. And then you move on to try to process the case and try to hold somebody responsible. That's not the way it works in our world with forensic pathology and medical legal death investigation. You literally go on from death to death to death to death. That's why you don't get your you don't involve yourself in things like seeking justice and all those sorts of things. That's somebody else's. That's down the hall and to the left. That's not our department. That's not what we're there for. You're there to give concrete answers. So I mean, true answers, so that if people want to move on, um, if they want to begin to put their lives back together after this devastation, then they can, and they can use that scientific data any way they choose to use it. But you're not, in your mind, you and I were talking in the kitchen before this, you're not giving them closure because you you believe that that doesn't really exist no. with this stuff. No, as a matter of fact, I think that when people say, I think it's probably one of the most insulting things you can say to a grieving person, you'll have closure someday. Mm. So in other words, shut your mouth. Don't tell me anything else about your grief. I don't want to hear it. Uh, you'll have closure. So they use the word closure as a substitute for that because closure is never really – you know, what? what is closure? It, it's a very this, formal word too. Yeah, it is, and it sounds very academic. Yes. You know, and th there's no you, – you cannot quantify closure. You know, at what point along the way do we have closure? No, you don't. You know, when I, when I left the ME's office in Atlanta – I had a guy that I had worked his son's suicide seven years before, and he would get drunk and he would call me generally about once a month. And at first it really irritated me, but his wife had died. And he would just, because he thought that he had a connection with me mm. because he had met me out on the scene that night, his son had hung himself Ugh. and he and I, I tried truly. I, I was as kind as I could be. Certainly that night when that happened, he was just racked by grief. And after a period of time, he would he felt comfortable enough at least to pull a cork and start calling me. And um, I worked overnights much of my career, and um, and I went from mildly irritated to really irritated, where I would be curt and cut him off. Until there was this point in time when he called me up. He said, I got nobody else to talk to. And I, I, you know, I shared that moment all those years back before with this guy, you know, after he's the one that walked in and uh, found his son hanging in the closet because he couldn't find him anywhere in the house. Hmm. And he had witnessed that. I'd witnessed that. And, you know, most of these cases, I I try to brush them aside and forget them. But 
you know, um, with his case in particular, I still, you know, I can still reflect back today. I, you know, I've worked tons of hangings, but I still remember that kid and I still remember him hanging in the closet in his bedroom. Um, and that dad, I don't know whatever became of him, but for seven years, you know, he would call me, um, and he never got closure. I mean, that, that didn't, that didn't happen for him. And I guess, I guess somebody could easily say, well, he should have, you should have directed him to the appropriate grief counselor. Really? <laughs> really? Okay. So that's, that's how that works. I'm going to direct, you know, he, he has to have, have the notion upon himself to want to recover and seek closure, whatever that means. Maybe he doesn't want closure. Maybe he wants to continue to grieve. Sometimes grieving is not necessarily a bad thing. No, it's it's a very it's one of the most human things we do. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen some of the videos of elephants grieving. Yes, right. I have yes. So think about how remarkable, like scientists and the general population, like me or you, sees that. Like, oh my god, another another animal truly outwardly like. Mm-hmm metaphysically goes through the grieving process it's so profound because we can relate to that and it says something about how important in my opinion that is to us as like a human race being you know if if life were just all great it wouldn't be any fun because you don't have there's nothing to go after there's no struggle to go through and one of the most morbid things about that is when the struggle involves something that no one should ever, ever have to go through. You know, your your kid commits suicide, your your spouse is murdered, your 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 parents are gunned down, and things like this. No one should ever have to go through that, but it's a part of what makes as a whole the human race resilient. And so, I think you're right about the closure thing, and and I appreciate how you put that because you never do truly close the door on someone close to you who's not here anymore. But there is also the aspect that you're the way to – I don't want to use like the term like, oh, achieve happiness or something like that. But the way to maximize being a human and being lucky to be alive here is that you do have to continue to live at some point. You know, You do have to not necessarily move on or have closure but like you're here and you have to – if if you're going to go find something for yourself and be able to have a have some brightness in the future you have to you have to open yourself up to that and i'm not saying by the way that like oh i'd be able to do that if i found my kid hanging in a closet this is this is one of those way easier said than done type things yes. but i think when sometimes when people hold on to grief as the forefront of who they are forever, right. it's a very, very as an as a person observing that, it's a very sad thing to see. It is sad and it's unhealthy. Um, and you know, people should certainly people should seek help, but they have to have an awareness to seek help. Yeah. Uh, and I think that I think that to a certain degree, people find comfort in in grief because they're they're holding on those those threads that bound them together with this individual that they're grieving for. That's really all they have. You know, in that memory, um, I, I look back and, you know, I think about I, I do some genealogy stuff and I, <laughs> I look back at some of and I, I know other people have made this comment, but I have to say it personally. I look back at some of my ancestors and when you're looking at these families that lost, 
I don't know, five or six kids. Right. None of them made made it to adulthood. But yet your familial line continued on after that. What is it that they did in order to get through all those points along the way to survive? How do you get past that grief? I lost a son. My wife and I lost a son. You lost a son. Yeah, and I was I was holding him in the hospital when he took his last breath. And I was going through, it's literally, a lot of it's tied back to um, the that period, very dark period of time in my life with the ME's office. And, um, and in a weird way, at that moment in time, uh, when Isaac breathed his last, uh, I notified myself. I notified myself. And I used to, I remember for me, one of the things I would do um, when I was going out to make a notification, I, I would make a deal with God and I would say, please help me extend some level of mercy to these people. And I hope that mercy will and kind be shown to me and my family at some point in time. And it was a weird thing. It, it really was. Um, when he passed on, he didn't live very long and we knew that he would probably not survive. And we were just wrecked. I mean, absolutely wrecked. And we, you know, and, um, the, all this other stuff was going on with my job at the time. Um, I just seen too much death at that point in my life. And then How that, long ago was this? that was in, uh, uh, 2004 when Isaac died. Um, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, and, and still too. No, I mean, no, I mean, people need to hear it because it's it's part of who I am, and it's part of what they see if they see me on television. I, um, it's my it's my grand hope. Um, I think that anything, any word that issues forth from my from my mouth is done in kindness and compassion, um, because that's that's a sometimes those lessons are hard learned, um, you know, in a very hard world. Some folks are not fully aware of they. They're not. <laughs> on a lighter note, when my wife and I first met, I love to tell this story. I was working for the ME in Atlanta, and we went out on a blind date. And you keep this, saying ME, by the way. Yeah, this is a dumb question. What does that that's mean? That's the medical examiner. There's okay. two. <laughs> one Sorry. of the things I study in academia is actually the coroner system, and mm. we can get off into that. But um, we will. I, we'll I, I started. I started off in a coroner system, wound up in a medical examiner system. But I was working for the medical examiner. I was a senior investigator, and uh, <clears throat> we went out on a blind date. Went to a Braves game. And mm. we went uh, to a place called uh, Fellini's. I'll never forget it, Fellini's Pizza. Um, and uh, after the game, and we were sitting there, and we had we had ordered a pie, and uh, uh, sitting there and chatting. And uh, this was twenty five years ago. I'll never forget. My wife, uh, she was sitting across the table from me, and. Uh, <laughs> She, she looked at me and she said, you know, because she's school teacher, public school teacher. Mm. All right. And she said this in, in the most sincere way. And <laughs> but when you think about the statement, she looked at me and said, uh, you know, until I met you, I never thought about death. Oh, wow. And you could take that That's any number of ways. If you're on started. a blind date, you know, you take that in any number of ways, but you know, she said, I'd, I'd never, I'd never thought about death. And, um, and there's some, there's some truth in that. 
Um, you know, you, I, I think that most people, first off, people don't want to, I don't think, admit that death occurs. They, they just kind of go on about their business because, and I agree with them, man. I mean, <laughs> I, I'd rather be thinking about fishing. You know, right. or laying out on the beach or, you know, hanging out with my grandkids or something like that. that. That's cool stuff, man. But, you know, death is the space that I occupy. And I can understand why people wouldn't think about death, but it is coming. For all of us. For every single person, it is. And we live our lives, you know, like we're 10 foot tall and bulletproof. And that's just not the case. And uh, I've seen mighty, mighty men fall over the course of my career and have documented their deaths. Um and, you know, my wife's innocent little statement there, she's speaking speaking truthfully from her heart because she, you know, you don't, you know, who goes around, you know, thinking, you know, she doesn't even know that people like me exist mm -hmm. from from an occupational sense. You know, you're thinking about, you know, who who is it that goes out and deals with all this? I just thought you called somebody and... You never want to meet them. No, you never do. You mm -hmm. never do. But isn't it funny when you do meet them, people have all these questions to ask yes. Yeah, they do really? because because whenever you're dealing with something related, well, in this case, you're dealing with death. But like, think about health. Someone will make a doctor their best friend the minute that they have a problem they never thought about before that day. Oh, you know, absolutely. This is yeah. it's a human reaction because now you're like, well, wait, this is the expert. This is the person I got to go to. Right. So tell me what to do. You know, yeah. and and it's it's just something we jump to do, but you're you're tasked to do it at at a particularly difficult time where you know. Hope is lost, you know. But. Yeah, it is, and you're there to. Um, I don't know. You're you're not there picking up pieces, and I've certainly done that literally. But it's you're there to try to make sense of 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 what's going on. Um, and and the one word I try to avoid, as a matter of fact, it's 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 obscene to me. I hate the word why. Why is a petulant childish word in my world um and you can drive yourself to madness by asking why about a lot of things in life but particularly as in life as it applies to death um you're much safer i think and you're going to have better resolutions come about as a result of asking what happened when did it happen how did it happen you start asking why are you? I have a question on this though. Are you referring specifically to when it comes to cases where the murders happen? People asking why, or are you saying why, like completely in general as a word, and asking why things I think happen? That, period. I think, I think that why is getting stuck in the mud linguistically for us. Okay. I think because you sit around and you ponder why long enough, it's a very philosophical thing, and it yeah. doesn't apply to science very well. Um, because you can drive yourself to madness, I think. You're looking for outcomes to try to understand um, uh, the process in which something occurs. What brought you to this point in time relative to uh, this event that you're documenting? Uh, what was it that that brought about the end of this life? And can I factually explain that? You start to get off into why it's very esoteric at that point in time mm. because it's, and, and for those that grieve, I think uh, you'll never get an answer to that question. Uh, particularly if you have an unknown uh, that's out there, you know, why me? Why them? Why did this happen to my family? 
it's I think that for me at least it's better to try to understand what happened. Um, you can make better sense of it because it's such an open-ended thing. I've had people ask me so many times, why, why, why? I've asked myself why, you know, relative to my profession and um, uh, many times in the positions I'd find myself in, you know, bearing witness to these horrible things, you know. Um, <laughs> when um, when I, I wrote... When I wrote my memoir, I um, I went home to New Orleans to visit um, visit my family and down there and my uncle. <clears throat> excuse me, my uncle wanted to uh, to take me to lunch to eat with his his uh, boss and his boss is a very wealthy man. He he owns a fabrication company or did he's deceased now. And uh, he, I. When I wrote Blood Beneath My Feet, I he had gotten a copy of it and he had read it. And uh he he liked he this man loved to meet authors and I'm I was not anybody of consequence. But we're he we're eating at this restaurant and he's sitting there and he, <laughs> uh we're we're chatting and he said, uh, well what what made you write write this book? What what was your motivation behind it? It's like I was angry, very angry. I was angry at death um, because of what I felt like that it had taken from me and the state that it had left me in at that point in time in my life. And he said, well, why were you angry? You chose to do this. Mm. And, you know, immediately I looked down at the fork and I was thinking, could I get this through the frontal bone of the skull? <laughs> <laughs> could, could I generate enough energy? And then, and then, for that moment in time, after I'd written Blood Beneath My Feet, you know, after, you know, I'd calmed down and I was sitting in the car, I was thinking, you know, you are a big baby. You know, mm. I did I did subject myself to this. I did. And, yeah, I mean, I can say that I did something that not many people have done. Um, How did I, you get into it? Like what – because, again, you don't strike me. And I've seen some of these guys have to testify or talk on TV as well about this stuff. You're a little different. You're, you are not the type of personality that I would have expected to do this job, which is maybe why you were so great at it. Well, thank you. I, I don't know how great I was at it. I, um, I had endurance. <laughs> I think I had endurance and, and um, uh, not a lot of wisdom uh, on certain certain fronts. Uh I was I, I was attending college in New Orleans, and I happened to be wa- working at a at a hospital as an orderly while I was going to college. Worked as an ER tech, I worked as a psych tech, and as a, a security guard. And did all these different jobs in the hospital, and it just so happened that um, that uh, the coroner's office in my jurisdiction, which is Jefferson Parish, was in a horrible state Mm. and um and they wound up having to bring all of the bodies for the parish to the this brand new hospital i was working at in order to do the autopsies while they could get the morgue repaired now compared to to new york this is not going to seem like a big number but for a shop we call them shops a shop our size where we only had 
essentially one forensic pathologist. We were doing roughly a thousand autopsies per year. The AMA or who is it? The the American Association of Pathologists, they recommend that no forensic pathologists do more than like 260 per year. Thousand a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At that time. And that's just the autopsies that, you know, there's. It's like the, four a day on a work day, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. Yeah. And it was nothing. It was a real cramped space. So anyway, you had to have a place to still do this. Um, and it, that didn't last for long because in South Louisiana, you get a lot of decomposed bodies because the environment's so harsh. Bodies mm. break down really quickly. The hospital didn't tolerate this for very long, but I became fast friends with uh, one of the investigators uh, with the coroner's office who was also a deaner, an autopsy assistant. Um, and he was actually from up, well, I say up this way. He was actually from Scranton, Pennsylvania and had come back South to go to, go to college, went to Ole Miss and got a degree in uh, forensics at Ole Miss, which back then was one of the most highly rated programs in the country. And he, we became fast friends and I started even even if I wasn't on duty at the hospital, talk about morbid fascination, I started going to autopsies in my off time and um, not getting paid for it, by the way. And I started out as uh, uh, what's, uh, what's termed as a scribe. So I would sit there with a clipboard as the doctor would do the autopsy and they would dictate to me, um, contrary to what people think, you know, they don't use a microphone hanging down. That's that's kind of passe. It's not not very effective. So I would write everything down. You have to learn to speak the language of the physicians while you're doing this. Mm. Great schooling. I mean, it's yeah. fantastic, and it comes at you hard and heavy. There's an old state, uh, an old uh, adage in in medicine, um, in particularly big general hospitals where they say, "See one, do one, teach one." And so you had to learn. You had to stay up. I mean, you could not fall behind because there's other bodies coming in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you learn, you just kind of learn through osmosis. And then finally one day I I was kind of like, as they say in the South, I was like a hair in a biscuit. I just didn't go away. And <laughs> I hung around long enough and finally he looked at me and said, uh, you want to learn how to close? And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? So they taught me how to stitch up a body. It's just a standard baseball stitch with kite string with an S-shaped needle. You just start whipping it out. And the next thing I knew, uh, they were saying, do you want to open? I was like, yeah, give me the blade, man. Let's do it. Cold steel. And So you were never you were never a squeamish type ever? Uh, initially, like I was. I had to get past really? it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to get past it. But again, I think that it was the fallback. Um, let me describe it to you this way. And this is kind of, people might find this, <laughs> this conversation is kind of strange anyway for most people. But <laughs> here's another layer of strange. Um I viewed this as very unique opportunity because every time we would open a body, I saw myself as on an exp- exploratory journey because I was seeing something that no one else had ever seen. As it applies to that person at that moment, Tom, we were opening up their body. And I was going to see a space in there that no one else, you never know what you're going to find. And I know that's, it's not necessarily morbid, it's scientific curiosity. And you do find these these interesting anomalies. You learn uh, a lot about trauma. Uh, you learn about wound tracks and 
range of fire estimations on uh, you know on bullets and uh, you you track sharp force injuries you understand what's happening or or you discover some young person that has died suddenly and you suddenly realize that they've had um, had a CVA had a stroke and no one saw it coming and you find that and you can pass that on to a family or you find that somebody's got a, a normal sized person's got the heart of a the size of a canned ham. It's a genetic anomaly. You get that information back to the family as soon as you can. Or, you know, I'll, I'll never forget the first time I ever saw a, a horseshoe kidney, for instance, which is a a kidney, a set of kidneys that never disconnected from one another. And it looks like a gigantic horseshoe. I actually held it up in front of my face like a, a big handlebar mustache. And they took a picture of me like this. Um, it was It was that exploration, I think, in that environment where you – Every single day, imagine imagine going to a lecture in college where where it's just the same droning on over mm. and over again. Every every lecture, every autopsy was like the first day of class every day because there was this excitement that kind of drove the process where I knew that I was going to learn something new and I'm acquiring all of this knowledge. And I'm not having to pay tuition, <laughs> and and uh, and the more skilled I become um, in that environment, uh, I can show that I can um, in in uh, autopsy pathology they refer to it as prosection as opposed to dissection. Uh, you're prosecting, uh, opening these bodies, weighing the organs, dissecting the organs. You're learning about the anatomy, how they function. Um, and you're putting it into context. If you've got massive trauma, you're putting everything, all the organ systems, how are they all impacted? Um, you're documenting fractures, uh, bullet holes, all the, the tracks of the wounds. All, all of this stuff comes into play. And, oh, by the way, I'm learning how to collect evidence at the same time. Mm. Doing tape lifts off of bodies, doing rape kits, all of these things that in the morgue, this is all thrown at you at one time. It's not like you're in a crime lab where you're doing these specialized little things where you're studying DNA or you're studying uh, serology or you're doing fingerprint. We're doing everything. I'm taking prints off of the dead. Um, and you're always partnering up with a doctor doing this. Always, 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 every, every single day. And, you know, when you're standing there, there's only so much you can endure um, in that environment um, where you're – you're faced at looking – let's say you walk in on a day, and I'm thinking back to the days when we were working in New Orleans. Um, you might be staring at five cases that day. Well, each case is different. Each case, you might have uh, an unexplained natural death. You might have a motor vehicle. You might have a suicide. Oh, and you might have a multiple gunshot wound homicide where you have to track all of those wounds. Um, um, you know, we – you know, I reflect back. I know, you know, like one case where I had a, a guy that weighed close to 500 pounds and he was shot with a 25 caliber pistol, dropped the magazine in it, reloaded and fired another magazine. So he, you've got, I can't, I can't remember, I think it was seven rounds. So you've got a total of 14 rounds with a variety of different tracks and you've got layers and layers and layers of fat that you're having to track these wounds through directionally all that. Yeah. yeah. And to try the relationship between the end of the muzzle to the point, you know, point where he was engaged on his body. Uh, what organ systems do they pass through? What, what actually killed him? Um, you know, you, you look at those cases and some of those things will be very, very complex and other ones will be just, you know, 
Um, it, it's it's really quite amazing when you think about it. And you know, the thing about it is, is that people don't go to autopsies anymore. They they kind of shut the door on that. So I have kids like that I teach nowadays. You know, uh, Gene Morgan. You know, can can you take us to an autopsy? No, it doesn't happen anymore. You know, they just they don't. Why let is people. that? I think a lot of it has to do, uh, obviously, with you know a lot of the ocean nonsense, and then uh, and then on top of that, um, on top of that. Um, they, um, they're looking to protect evidence because, you know, yeah, you can have natural deaths, but three bodies down the line, you're going to have homicide too. And that, that body involved in that homicide is the biggest piece of evidence that you have. And you can't afford to bring somebody into that environment and contaminate it. But I've seen kids that are going through medical school. They're so starved for, um, actually having contact with, uh, human remains to, you know, just kind of understand form and function. Sure. Um, I, I won't state the name of the medical school, but I've, I've actually shown up at a morgue ready to do autopsies. And I've had a line of medical students waiting outside the morgue because the medical school didn't have sufficient cadavers uh. and they would just stand around and just watch us do these, do these autopsies, these greatly traumatized bodies. They didn't have an opportunity to, to do anything necessarily, but they they were just in the presence. Even, you know, the the medical students understood how how important it was to be in the presence of of the anatomy. But when you're and maybe I'm understanding this incorrectly, mm-hmm. I just want to make sure I have this right because you're always working with a physician. But you talked about like closing wounds and opening up the body and stuff. Like mm-hmm. you're doing that too. Then, with, oh yeah, yeah. And you know, th- there's meaning two- you're not you're not sitting. I just want to make sure I got this. You're not just sitting there. While they're doing it right next to them and going, okay, let's check out that whatever. Like you're literally doing. This. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's that's the way it works. You know, you have if you have there's there's very few. You know, people think about this idea of forensic pathologist. Um, <laughs> you know, when they see it in the media, they've got this you know some hot sexy character that's a forensic pathologist that goes out on crime scenes and they do all of the autopsies. That's a bunch of garbage. It doesn't happen. Um, there's not that many forensic pathologists out there. It's it's probably one of the fewest medical specialties where the more education you, you get, the less you get paid. And mm. you're going to wind up being a government employee. So if you just stop at being a hospital pathologist, you're going to make more money. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so that's the type of people. So, you know, people like me that are lay investigators, um, you know, because I have a master's in forensic science. And but I'm trained specifically in medical legal death investigation, so that I worked as a path assistant as well. And so it just you you get into a space where the doctor trusts you, where you might have three autopsies going on in one time. I've actually been in a room where we've had seven bodies open at one time, and you've got two physicians, and they're moving Jesus between the bodies. Oh, I'll, if you like playing like house music and dancing around. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. If you like that one, I'll give you even a better one. Um, I was at a conference one year and um, happened to be seated next to the guy that did uh, that did the autopsies on uh, Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman in the mm. O.J. Simpson case. And I was fascinated by this. I was working in Atlanta. I think at the time, I don't think I was still in New Orleans. I was working in Atlanta and I was seated seated next to this guy he's a forensic pathologist and there were two i'll never forget there were two investigators from the emmy's office in dallas that were seated across from us and i was fascinated by this guy because he's from la county 
and I'd met, <clears throat> I'd met uh, Tom Noguchi, and I recommend anybody that wants to read a great book, read Tom Noguchi's book, uh, Corner to the Stars, or Corner at Large is the name of it. He did the autopsies on Belushi and Marilyn Monroe and the uh, Sharon Tate. But this is the first person other than Dr. Noguchi that I had met um, that was from there. And, you know, I met him the year before he did, uh, before the O.J. Simpson case happened. Oh, wow. That's so we would just happen to be at a yeah. luncheon. And I'm, I remember looking at him, and he was just like staring at his food. He wasn't looking up or anything. And he, he kind of acted like, well, I felt sorry for him because nobody was talking to him, for one. I saw an opportunity to chat with this guy because he worked at a really big shop. And I just wanted to try to understand the volume. I said, hey, Doc, I, I was just curious. I work in Atlanta. I was just wondering, what, what's your average day like at L.A. County? You know, when you're on, on duty, I said, what's your average number of posts like? 13. 13 a 13, day. yeah. That's what he said. Now, I can't validate that. But and that's said, just one shop. They probably have multiple set up. No, I think they have. That's the singular shop for them. And, you know, they'll, they deal for in a LA real. County? Yeah, I think so. I that think almost it's, seems it's, low then. 13. Well, yeah, but you don't know if he's got other colleagues that are on duty as well. Oh, duh. And they've right. got a whole staff of forensic pathologists. You go to the office chief medical examiner in New York. Talk about a high volume shot. Yeah. It's very high volume. And there's a lot of other places like that where it's nothing, you know, to walk in and, you know, you've, and you have to do it. I mean, there's, you have to get the bodies in and out, get them processed in and out. And then you have to understand there's so much static that's involved. It's almost like, it's almost like landing airplanes because there's so much data coming in for each one of these individuals. Go back to what you had said about each one of these people is significant. Each each decedent is significant. They're a life that has ended. So you have to be sure that yes. you have been as thorough as you possibly can. And I don't it's it's hard to for people to fathom the intensity that you have to work out, the level of intensity where you're having to pay attention to everything that is occurring. You know, if you're talking about a really highly involved technical case where you've got individuals that have sustained um maybe sexual trauma where you're having to do uh, you're having to swap for DNA, you're mm. having to do uh rape kits, hair pluckings, nail trimmings, nail scrapings, nail trimmings, uh everything that goes along with that and you haven't even gotten to the autopsy yet. <laughs> That's just the initial collection of evidence and then the clothing that comes in with them. So it's it's I'm not gonna say it's a high wire act, but it's a it's a routine that you get into and you begin to much like they do in an emergency room with the living patients when they, you triage these people, you begin to do that initial assessment and understand what you need to put the most force behind it. That you know what's going to you know who's going to be there for it. What do you, what resources do you need? You know all of those sorts of things. One thing I keep thinking about as you've been talking all day today and going through different parts of cases that you worked, be it notifying the next of kin or working in, in the actual – in the coroner's office and going through the bodies or trying to reassess the scene and everything is the actual role that like the forensics investigator plays. Like mm -hmm. what part of the chain, food chain yeah. they're on here in the investigation. So like we all know the detectives. They're mm -hmm. trying to solve the cases. They obviously have contact with everybody. Right. We understand as we've 
reiterated today, there's always a doctor who's involved in the actual autopsy and, right. and going through it to be able to determine official cause of death. And then somewhere in the middle, you have you. You have right. the forensics guy. So you're you're not a detective, but I mean, you're doing all detective work. So are you like a partner with them from step one through the rest of the process, or are you more independent? Like, how does it work? Yeah, we are independent distinctly. Um, we're not there to arrest people. We're not there to, you know, see that, uh, you know, the bad guys are caught and all that stuff. I, you know, I, I hope that bad people are caught, you know, and if what I do contributes to that or what my colleagues do now uh, contributes to that, then more power to them. But yeah, again, that you have to tightly define what you do and understand your position and your role. And so when it comes to, this is the, the neatest and cleanest way to understand this. The medical examiner or coroner are not, they are not interested. They're not in the business of prosecuting people. The police are part and par parcel of the process of prosecuting. Uh, if there's a crime that has been committed. So just think of it this way. The police in, in a way, are kind of the eyes and the ears of the prosecutor or mm. the district attorney or the solicitor or whatever anybody has in their particular jurisdiction. Their end game is to, uh, you know, find out who committed a homicide or find out who's responsible for a motor vehicle accident. For us, because I mentioned earlier that there's not enough forensic pathologists to go around, uh, they don't go to scenes. There are those rare occasions where they do. We, as medical legal death investigators, are the eyes and the ears of the forensic pathologist on the scene. Mm. So we're bringing our own sensibilities to the scene. And, um, you know, homicides, we're physically there, um, working the case the way we work it, um, trying to understand the environment in which the body is found. And, you know, that goes to things like determining what we refer to as PMI, postmortem interval, which is the question we always get asked, you know, how long has this individual been deceased? And that's where things like rigor mortis, rigor mortis, some people say, postmortem lividity or liver mortis, algor mortis, which is body temperature, uh, all come into play. And so we're, we're trying to assess that. Uh, we're also to a limited to a limited degree at the scene, we're trying to assess injuries out there so that we understand it and we understand it in context to the environment in which the body is found. Because, you know, you can have an individual lying on the floor that appears to have a defect in their chest that might be a gunshot wound, and there's a hole in the glass that's immediately adjacent to them that overlooks the street. Mm. Um, and you're trying to understand that relationship. Is it possible? Is it within the realm of possibility that this person prior to being dead was standing up erect in the space in front of that glass or on this side of the glass around passed through the window and struck them in the chest. It's all about the relationship between them. So you're trying to determine what the possibility is of, uh, the trajectory of the round, the range of fire. Did the round pass through what we refer to as an intermediate target? Because, if it passes through an intermediate target, even like glass, that's going to deform the bullet. So uh, in that particular instance, if you have a round that has passed through glass, 
It could change the configuration of the round. It can change the trajectory of the round. And it's going to give you kind of an oddball injury. Uh, it'll look different because the round is deformed. So let's take that example and you bring this victim into the autopsy room. The pathologist who was not at the scene has no context. They're looking at it and they're trying to understand mm. why is this why is this defect in the chest so oddly shaped? I don't understand. Why why is this? Oh, well, Doc, uh apparently this round may have passed through an intermediate target. Maybe it was drywall, maybe it was a piece of glass, who knows? Maybe it was another person. And so you that's kind of a nuance that the police are they'll look at it and they'll they'll form their own opinions about it. But that's something that is not necessarily that they're as much interested in as we are. Uh, the dynamics of how this impacted the body. Because at the end of the day, the forensic pathologist is going to be the one that's going to have to get up on the stand and try to help the jury understand what happened at the scene. And we're in, in our world, we are, um, we're agnostic um, when it comes to prosecution and defense. You know, we talk mm. to them equally. Okay, and we're talking strictly about homicides right now, which is only one of the things that we do. Right. Um, I'm just as comfortable talking to a defense attorney uh, as I am talking to a prosecutor. All right. I'm not on anyone's team other than my team, which is the medical legal community. And you have to have that that unbiased view of of what. You know, you're trying to examine the science that's out there and bring that data in. If you don't effectively examine that person as thoroughly as you can within reason, because, for instance, if you've got multiple gunshot wounds that appear to be gunshot wounds, because you can't call a gunshot wound a gunshot wound at the scene, and there's a reason you don't do that, and I call them circular defects, for for instance. Um, really? I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the reason is, is that if I write that down in a report and I make that assessment at the scene, I don't know for a fact that that's a gunshot wound. So if we get them back and we're talking, let's just say you've got a body on a street outside that's in a completely unilluminated area. You're going to, you're going to trust yourself to use a handheld flashlight to make that kind of assessment mm. and annotate that in a report prior to having a board-certified forensic pathologist get it into an environment that is surgically lit to yeah. make that assessment. So if you have these two conflicting assessments, you know, and I, I take issue with people that call things entrances versus exits. Um, hmm. You can make that assessment in the morgue. You don't want to do that at the scene. You can kind of opine about it. Maybe this could be, it couldn't be. So but, you like the scene to have observations without opinions. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Because that's, that's 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 the essence of what we do it's it's scientific discovery you 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 qualify it and then when you get back you quantify it and it's like any other kind of scientific testing it takes a little bit of time so when you just for like the timing of things here mm -hmm. so i can understand it yeah sure because you you said obviously you're independent of the detectives right, and, right. and these are whole different ball games but when a crime scene is found and someone's dead. Let's say, let's stay with the homicide example yeah, sure. just to keep it simple. 
and you know they were shot a bunch of times whatever it was they're dead it's a bloody scene there's no like emt coming on like they're gone the police get called the first beat cops if you will come down there they then contact the detectives to come down right are you contacted at like the same time or like who who calls you if it's a homicide most of the time it will be CID, the Criminal Investigation Division, which is comprised of the detectives. Right. But if you if you know if you if you know that you have multiple deaths, for instance, most of the time a beat officer will go ahead and say you need to roll the ME out here. You need to get them in route two, and we'll stage behind them. Because this is the thing, I, I don't want to get in anybody, and I hope that no one wants to get in the way of a detective that's trying to do their right. job. Right. Um, give them enough time to assess the scene uh, where they can get in there, make all of their observations. You're going to have to wait anyway because of all of the photography and measurements that go on relative to what they do. And we'll kind of duplicate that as well because I do my own photography or did in practice, and um, uh, we take our own measurements most of the time. Sometimes we'll work with the police in that and sharing sharing measurements, um, but we want an independent assessment of this environment relative to what we're seeing um, and try to understand where all these bits of evidence are. And and look, man, the old adage about, you know, too many cooks in the kitchen spoil the soup. Mm. Um, you don't want anybody inside of that yellow tape that doesn't have to be there, right. period. Right. Uh, you get out, you know, particularly in locations that are more political where you have elected officials that seem they have the desire to be seen walking under the tape uh, and they have, they, they have no good reason to be there whatsoever. You let the detective be in charge to run that scene. But as long as a body is there, the medical examiner coroner has control. And so you have to work together. Once the body is gone, then, you know, all bets are off. It's going to be up to the homicide detective to process it from there, and their people are going to do what they do. And it's very important that you keep an open door for the medical examiner and uh, to the detectives to come to autopsies. Um, there are certain jurisdictions. I think New York used to be this way. I don't know if they're the same. They have an entire squad that is dedicated to having um, investigators from the PD that go to autopsies mm. because they have deal in such a volume of cases. I don't, who knows what manpower is like now, but that's the way it used to be so that they could get the straight dope from the medical examiner, uh, the pathologist that's doing the autopsy and then talk to them immediately and get that back to the investigators that are handling the case. Well, quick side point before I ask the next mm -hmm. question, yeah. why are you the guy that goes to notify the next of kin as opposed to the <clears throat> detective? Uh, well, because the lion's share, only about, I don't know, 1% of all the deaths that occur are homicides. So, you know, you're not going to be getting a detective involved in a suicide or a motor vehicle accident. You right. might have state police that will go out and make a notification, industrial accidents, natural deaths, undetermined deaths. It, it just it falls to us. It's something that we study within the medical legal realm. It's something we're trained to do, and it's something that we go out and document because – um, we have to assure that or ensure that notification has been made. You cannot imagine how many times we've been put off scent at scene by somebody that claims to be a next of kin. You can't, people don't think that people would be this cruel, but there are people that will show up at scene and say, yeah, that's my brother. 
<sighs> oh, okay. That's your brother. And there are people that will bite on that and just assume that they've notified the brother. Well, it turns out that that's just somebody that was there to create mischief and horrible mischief at that. Because that's like the then, lowest thing. Oh, it is. It's horrible, and it does happen. So I have to verify that because we're going to be in possession of the remains, and the police have enough to worry about most of the time. Now, there are those certain circumstances where you'll have a familial involvement with a case where the police might want to make the notification because they think the family's involved and they want to eyeball and see what the reaction is. And mm. sometimes that does happen as well. Got it. Okay. But back to what you were saying about mm-hmm. the crime scene and, and the process. I think the hard part for the layman like me to put together is it almost seems like what you do overlaps so much with the detectives. It does. And then the difference is you guys actually hold the scalpel in the back room. Yes. Whereas they don't. But a lot of times, like just thinking about like watching TV, which you really got to be careful with that because a lot of it's Hollywood. But I thought all that you, was true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not talking about the TV you're on. I'm talking about Law and Order and stuff. It's like you will see the detectives. You know, they'll arrive and be like, "All right, John, tell me what we got." And John's like the medical examiner, saying, right. "I see a bullet, possible hole right there." Right. And if you look at the glass over here, kind of like the example you were giving. So it's almost like the detective's job is to be the manager of the evidence they are. that's no that's very well said okay they, they certainly are because they have they have they have the most to gain and lose in in those critical moments and again you don't want to be an impediment to their job mm-hmm. you're adjunct to what they're doing you have a subspecialty in the investigation that is critical to try to determine what happened um, just like anybody else any other technical person that were to show up at the scene um if you think about uh, a trace evidence person that's out there, maybe you've got an individual that's good at impression evidence. Um, they're collecting shoe prints. Maybe they're collecting uh, uh, latent prints. Maybe you, you've got a tool mark guy that's going to show up. Well, he's looking how a lock was jimmied. Um, he's looking how if a pry bar was applied to uh, some some window to get get access to the environment. There's any number of subspecialties that come out. Some of them you know, um, some of my longest lasting relationships uh, as um, as a medical legal death investigator have been with forensic anthropologists. They mm. are, again, another subset of the of the big picture because you bring them out because they have certain expertise that applies to human skeletal remains that no one else can bring to bear. Uh, you know, when you're doing a recovery of a clandestine burial site or maybe remains that are scattered around an area that animal activity has been involved in, or maybe you find a, a single bone that's out there. You know, that, that happens a lot. You know, uh, you, you find uh, some skeletal element that's out there and people think that they've found, you know, Jimmy Hoffa, and it turns out <laughs> that it was some hog that had been butchered and they barbecued it, mm. you know, because you see the spiral marks on the end of the bone where it had been butchered. So it, you know, there's multiple specialties that come out, and it, it gets very confusing for people that are just kind of passively watching the stuff, and they think that it's the gospel truth if it's coming out of Hollywood, and certainly it's not. Yeah, and and one thing that strikes me when I hear you talk on TV and in the clips I see on social media and then on your podcast, Body Bags, by yep. the way, great podcast. Thank you. And that's available on all platforms? All right? platforms, yes. Cool. So, And we're going to get you doing a YouTube channel at some point. <laughs> okay, we're all working right. on that. I hear you, bro. But, you know... I'm I'm never 
less amazed by how many variables you so easily come up with. Now, I understand, okay, you've seen crime scenes. Yes, there's basic things. You look for footprints. You look for residue. You look for directionality, stuff like that. But every crime scene you go to is different. Yes, it is. Every – like – a basic – two basic houses right next to each other, same design, similar types of families living in there. One could have this type of glass with their water and the other could have this type of glass. And the way that a bullet or the way that a knife – mm-hmm. I'm making shit up right here. But the way stuff goes through something is different scientifically. Yes, it is. So you are seeing – I mean just doing decision trees in my head, I'm seeing – Tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of permutations. Permutations, yeah, there you go. <laughs> every crime scene yeah. Yeah. that per, perhaps half of them you've never seen before, but you have to be the guy that puts it together to then arrive at the result where you get to say that 10% area where it's like, okay, now we have the right idea, so we're going to be close enough to be able to make a case. Yeah. How the fuck do you do that? <laughs> it's hard. It, it is. And and now you're going to make me self-conscious because now you got me thinking about it. It's like when I was flying in today into Philly, you were kind enough to fly me up here, uh, Julian. Uh, we we were fighting thunderstorms all the way here. I think we we orbited the city of brotherly love probably for about 25 minutes. And I'm <laughs> I'm actually sitting there with my eyes closed, thinking, I hope this guy knows what he's doing. <laughs> and, you know, and he has to think about all of these different things. And now that you say this, you know, obviously we're in a more static environment than a pilot you know so we have the luxury of time uh to a certain degree mm. when we're processing the scene that's why it's <laughs> the younger you are the more chomping at the bit you are mm. that's why it's so important when you have a group of people that are there to process the scene is that you stay outside the tape as long as you can and you formulate a plan that seems rather rote but nothing could be truer because you have to there are certain things that are going to occur that are going to be different than anything else you've seen before. You, you talk about, uh, you know, you gave this example of window panes, for instance. You know, whether you buy from Lowe's or Home Depot or, you know, uh, the helpful hardware man at Ace, uh, your window, your glass, it might be completely different. Maybe mm. you've got more money to spend on glass. Leaded glass is going to act differently than, say, really cheapo glass that you've got. Um and so you begin to think about all of these sorts of things, uh, and yeah, it can drive you to madness if you allow it, but you sit there and you try to collect every bit of data along these data points that you can and collect everything. That's another key here. How much do you collect? You know, I've, I've left scenes, I've left scenes where I have assisted crime scene investigators, which are different than the homicide detectives. I have left scenes before. Julian, where I've seen three white panel vans drive off loaded with evidence that they're taking back, you know, from some scene that they felt the need to collect everything. Then I've seen other people just walk out with a couple of bags of evidence. It's hard to know where the the line is. Uh, And, you know, you you have to react and uh, and act according to the environment you, you find yourself deployed in. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the line, though. It's like you get one shot at this. You do. You know, so, and I also always think about something you brought up a little bit ago, and, and maybe we can talk about it more now, but about the the timing of it, too, especially with homicides. Like, when you're when you're trying to figure out how long ago someone died, and the fact is, you were telling me before we were on camera, it's really hard to get it 
pass like within three to four hours right. of potential variability, which is unfortunately like a fuck ton of time as far as like when a crime could be committed. But right. to get when, – when you get to a body, the sooner you're there, I got to think the better determination you can make that then can be the difference between whether or not you could place the killer there or not. Yeah, I get um – I'm glad you brought that up. PMI is something that, you know, I kind of focus on and, you know, talk about a lot in my classes that I teach. And I think that it's a valuable asset. However, you have to take it with a grain of salt. Uh, mm-hmm. I gave an interview a few years ago to, I think it was Law Enforcement Technology Magazine. <laughs> Most people don't know that something like that exists, but it does. Uh, <laughs> they do not, now. Very nice people. Um, um, they asked me to hold forth on my thoughts about PMI, post-mortem interval. And uh, they actually asked me a, an odd question. Uh, I was surprised. Um, the interviewer said, what's your favorite way to determine postmortem interval? And without hesitation, uh, I said postmortem lividity or liver mortis. And that's, that is the settling of blood. Because no matter where you go on earth, and I know that there are physics people that are out there that will debate this. Gravity really doesn't vary that much. Okay, mm. that, I know that it does. <laughs> please don't, please don't reach out. But yeah, I mean, you know, gravity is gravity is gravity. So where a body winds up falling, um, you know, the blood is going to be drawn to that lowest point, and we can actually see a demonstration of postmortem lividity pretty quickly after death because once the heart stops pumping. That fluid, just like water or anything else, blood is more viscous or thicker, is going to seek that lowest point of gravity. And once it sets in and it fixes, and it takes a prescribed amount of time for it to fix, um, then wherever it is, if the body is moved after it's fixed, that's one of the things we look for. We know that somebody has had contact with that body after death and has tried to manipulate the body. And maybe you've got mm. it, if you've got postmortem lividity between the shoulder blades, you know that they've been laying in a supine position or face up, and then lividity sets in, and then the body is moved and it's placed in a prone position, and it's completely blanched white on the front, but you got lividity on the back. We we know that somebody's messed with the body at that point in time. Mm. Now the least reliable, and what everybody turns to, and even again our friends in Hollywood, this is their device. Um, people put a lot of stock in the temperature of bodies. That's one of the things that is so variable and so environmentally dependent, and it is dependent, it is uh, physiologically, or what was the former physiology of the individual, dependent upon them. Um, the body type, uh, the density of the body, um, if, if there was illness going on, somebody's got a high temp, um, uh, that's going to you know skew your data. And... You know, if we're if we're outdoors, uh, you know, we're we're going to have so many variables. And this is what always strikes me is is kind of interesting. People that have tried to do studies relative to uh, algor mortis, which is the body temperature, um, their their ideal their ideal temp is seventy two degrees. Now, I got to tell you, up here in Pennsylvania. I can only imagine if you're outdoors in the middle of February, a 72 degree day up here is going to be such an anomaly and it's going to be so perfect. People are going to want to get the sticks out and go play some golf or whatever. It, It just doesn't happen. On the flip side, I live in Alabama, man. 
Do you think we ever see any 72-degree days in the middle of summer down there? No, it's boiling. Absolutely. Right. We might see 72 degrees at 1 o'clock in the morning. There's too many variables to go along with that. And then we have rigidity, rigor mortis. You know, we try to measure it. It takes a uh, it takes a bit of time for it to set in. And, again, it's temperature dependent. The hotter, the hotter the temperature it's just like any experiment that you do when you're a kid. You know, we either use an alcohol burner or a Bunsen burner, even, you know, maybe when you're first exposed to that in the eighth grade in physical science. Um, you know, heat speeds things up. So it could it could hearken the onset of rigor mortis. The body gets stiff quicker. You know, what, what happens for, for that? That's something I really should, like, look at on Google more and, like, really go down the rabbit hole. But what is the full – like, what are the main – things that happen when a body goes into rigor mortis? Well, first off, if anybody's ever worked out, the, the closest I will tell you in life that you will feel what rigor mortis is like is if you haven't worked out in a while and you go hop on a bench and you do some bench presses, maybe you do push-ups, that sort of thing, uh, and the next morning you wake up and you're all stiff, that's right. a buildup of lactic acid. Mm. And you can go take Tylenol for it. You can do all these sorts of things. But look, it, it's going to metabolize. It'll get out of your system. Uh, the dead don't have the ability to metabolize. So when you, you get this rigidity in the jaw, you get it in the, in the fingers, you get it in the elbows and shoulders, and you know we measure it in various areas. Um, it is because that lactic acid builds up as a result of this decompositional process that's starting, and you have this rigidity that sets in in the body. There's a classic photo that comes out of... Uh, what we consider in forensic medical legal death investigation that's referred to as uh, 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 Spitz and Fisher. We use this um, this text. And there's a great photo in there if anybody ever sees it. And it was taken at the office of the chief medical examiner. Uh, this book first came out, I think, in 1966. As a matter of fact, the foreword was written by Ramsey Clark, who was the uh, – the, uh, um, the chief prosecutor, uh, the U.S. Attorney General at the time. That's how old this book is. But there's this great photo of a guy, guy's body, in full rigor at the office of the chief medical examiner in New York. And he is. Is that it behind you? Let me see. Right here? Yeah. No. Uh -uh. That's not it. Okay. And I was trying to pull it up while you were no, talking. And he's, okay. he's in, it's in black and white. And the back of his head is supported by the edge of a chair. And his heels are supported by the edge of a chair, and there's nothing beneath him. You could iron a shirt on this guy's chest. That's how rigid the body is. And that gives you an example of the level of rigidity. But one of the ways we mark this is that once you get out to about 36 hours after death, rigor will begin to dissipate. And, again, that's one of the markers in time that we use. So once it's starting to dissipate, we know, and the body becomes what we refer to as flaccid, means that you can move the limbs around again. We know that as far as the timing, timing goes, we know that we're out past that marker. So the person's been dead. And, and there's other things that we look for. Uh, you know, the, uh, the body going flaccid, uh, lividity is set in, it's fixed, it's not going anywhere. Um, and then, but with temperature, once you get out past 12 hours, it's useless. It's absolutely useless. That mm -hmm. that data that you would collect, and the way people collect the data is wrong. Um, famously, in the recent case, in the Murdoch case, it came up that 
they did uh, what's called a, an axillary body temperature, where you take a, a thermometer and you put it uh, in the in the armpit, um, and uh, people believe that that's the best way to get a, a body temperature. Well, no, it's not because you're not getting a core body temp. Well, there's one person that says that you should do a rectal temperature on the dead at the scene. The problem with that is that lawyers are involved. And if you change the methodology that you employ to get to get a body temperature, for instance, I'll just throw this out as an example. You're going to tell me that that data is so important that if you have a rape case, you're going to take a foreign object and place it in a location like that to get a body temperature where you might disrupt evidence in a rape case. Mm. It's not worth that. And then there's another group of people that talk about core body temperature. And let me lay this on you. This group of people believes that at the scene, you should take a scalpel and go just beneath uh, the right rib cage where your liver is, is uh, seated. And you make an incision there, and then you take a digital thermometer and you place it into the liver core. That's the densest organ in the body. Okay. And you get a body temperature. Okay, so you're telling me, oh, and then on top of that, they want you to put a circle around it with a marks lot and initial it to say that you did it. So let's just say that that's your standard that you're adopting in your office. Yeah. So yeah. if you've got a multiple stab wound case, <laughs> this data is so important that you want to introduce a scalpel wound uh -huh. to the deceased. And you might have multiple, because if that's the standard, when you go to court, they'll say, well, you employed it in all these other cases. Why in the hell didn't you do it in this case? Mm. How are we? This data is skewed. We we don't know what the body temperature is. God so you see, man. it's sorry. It's nutty. one of those things that's that's absolutely nutty when you begin to think about it. Is that data so important? And people make such a big deal out of it that um, I you know I question the validity of, or, or the reason why you would need it. I, I think that. Postmortem lividity is probably about as good as it gets, and maybe to a lesser degree, rigor mortis. God damn, there are so many. I mean, <laughs> just, I, I know I already said it, but it's like there's just so many small variables. Like I had this woman Nancy Solomon in here, who's an amazing reporter who has unearthed this old, probably the coldest case in the history of New Jersey and it's, it involves potentially politics and power and the whole bit. Uh -oh. And it's the Sheridan murders. I don't know if you ever heard of these I ones. I have not. No. So back in 2014, September, 2014, to be exact, you had a husband and wife, John and Joyce Sheridan, who were brutally murdered in the bedroom of their home. Before sunrise, a neighbor, next-door neighbor, smells smoke, and he goes outside, and he thinks he can see smoke coming out of the Sheridan house. He calls 911, and they send out fire and police right away. What they found was Joyce Sheridan had been stabbed multiple times. She was dead. She was lying on the floor. They find John Sheridan under the armoire. He's stabbed and on fire. John Sheridan had worked basically his whole career in New Jersey politics, and he was sort of an informal advisor, if not an official advisor, to several uh, governors. So the detectives and the prosecutor sit down and meet with the brothers, and they say, well, look, your father killed your mother and then tried to stab himself and couldn't do it. 
Then the brothers get access to the house and they just can't believe what they find. Like the rug that their father died on that is a blood stain is sitting rolled up in the hallway. There's no fingerprint dust. How soon did they start looking into a guy like Bonnet? Immediately, yes, that week. Now what did he find? Well, see, this is super interesting, right? <laughs> now John was a longtime New Jersey political dealmaker. He was a moderate guy in a blue state. He was a red guy and like very well liked by both sides. And he had done that for, I don't know, fucking three, four decades or something. And at this point, he was 71, 72, somewhere in there, years old. His wife was a similar age. And he had spent the last, I don't know, several years of his life, maybe it was five, maybe it was seven, as the CEO of Cooper Hospital in Camden, New Jersey, oh, right? And okay. he was a guy who really helped grow the hospital in, into into a serious place. And so... When, he, when they were found in their home in a very remote town, Skillman, New Jersey, which they don't let people like me in Skillman, New Jersey. It's oh, like very nice. Oh, you know? I see. Like, there's okay. like an alarm bell that goes off when yeah, I yeah, enter yeah, the yeah. zip code. I've been to places like that before. Right. So anyway. <laughs> or tried that, to go to places like that. Not that I was allowed in the zip code, <laughs> but he and, his, he and his wife were found with the house on fire, stabbed to death in their bedroom and i won't go through the entire crime scene it was very complex but basically he had an armoire on top of him it was blocking the door for a while he had been stabbed she had been stabbed and they were taken out of there their bodies weren't fully charred at all they were very recoverable but they were taken out of there dead and it has turned into this whole thing they they declared it a, a murder suicide when it happened, which everyone was like, no fucking way. Yeah, like, there yeah. was no signs of that whatsoever. It has since been changed to undeclared. Three right. years later, they, they changed his death certificate to whatever the official term is, undeclared, unclassified. Undetermined. Undetermined, that's right, it. Right. And Nancy is actually responsible for getting the case opened back up because mm -hmm. she did an unbelievable podcast called Dead End. It's available on all the platforms. Breaking down the case in eight parts – where it was like, wait, there's so many things they didn't look at. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because the nature of the fuck up at the crime scene cannot be understated. All the details that, that, that you and I have talked about that you have to take into account. These guys basically like you talked about the three vans leaving a scene versus like two bags leaving a scene. These yeah. guys were like a fucking little – peanut butter and jelly bag leaving the scene right right they missed all the residue they like the blood splatter they missed where the body was moving she and i didn't even talk about these terms rigor mortis or or what's the other one liver mortis yeah liver mortis La liver yeah, yeah. mortis and yeah. stuff like this because they never even got there you know and so you it, it just goes to show you and this was a high profile murder too this wasn't you know some neighborhood where they're taken less seriously by the news because yeah, it yeah. happens all the time, which we also already talked about. But like, you know, it just goes to show you every one of these little things can set off a slippery slope. Like you miss – maybe you miss – evaluate the liver mortis and you don't take that into account so now you're not taking into account that the body moved from here to here and now you're not looking at the spot where it originally was so maybe you didn't get all the blood splatter there and you assumed it was just like dragged from the person having right. you know some sort of like fight against it and now the entire case is blown it's done yeah 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 and that 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 is a problem and <laughs> this is quite fascinating you can be 
And again, I'm chief among sinners. I, I've, I've screwed up so many times on scenes over the years, things that I've forgotten to do or missed because there's so many uh, acrobatics that, that you can do. You know, your, your brain can't function at, 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 uh, at the level that it needs to function if, you, if you're getting slammed with cases. People miss things. But then you have to understand, are these sins of omission or commission? You know, you begin to think about that and try to understand, uh, is this something that, you know, is just, we just forgot? Or is it something that, ah, you know, we we don't need that, you know, that sort of thing. You have to, it, that's why mm. the under the underpinning of everything that we do in the medical legal sense <clears throat> goes back to the science. We try to treat each case, um, no matter if it's, an 88-year-old mama that passes away in the middle of the night, you try to treat each case as if it is a homicide until proven otherwise, period. End of story. Mm. As you said, you get one shot at doing it, and you can be tripped up very easily. I have been tripped up. Um, Do you have and, an example of that? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I have a great example, as a matter of fact. Um, I had a um, uh, a little old lady actually uh, lived in a trailer uh, not too far away from the Atlanta airport, and um, she lived alone. Her adult son drove a taxi, and he would make the big loop from Atlanta Hartsfield down into the hotel district in downtown Atlanta. So he'd be picking up people, you know, off of planes that are, you know, getting off at Hartsfield. You know what they say about Hartsfield and Atlanta? If you're going to hell, you got to change planes in Atlanta. So, <laughs> yeah. so you. You know, you hop hop in the cab, he takes you down, and he just makes a big loop back and forth all day long. And, well, his his mother lived in a little trailer park, and nice, neat little home, uh, very, <clears throat> very clean, orderly. And he would stop by every day and have lunch with his mom, okay? Um, and you could tell the guy, you know, really cared for his mother. He was religious. He would come by and check on her every day. Well, he shows up, and... Mama's laying on the sofa in the front room, and he is, uh, she is, um, just kind of reposed there in her. Uh, she had a, I'll never forget, she had a white cotton, uh, ankle length uh, nightgown on uh, with a little embroidery on it. Just looked perfect, mm. and her hands were actually crossed, like you'd see in a casket, which is something that <laughs> you don't see that. <laughs> And no, not all, not all dead people close their eyes. So, you know, it, it, there's just certain things that you look for. And it was on a Memorial Day. It was on a Memorial Day weekend. And I remember complaining to the young police officer that was there that rolled out on this thing with me because we thought it was a natural. We were complaining that we were having to work and no one else is having to work. Everybody else is off. And I was having to cover the whole county and the city of Atlanta by myself. I was the only investigator on. We were just belly aching. <sighs> And I'll never forget this. Um, this is back in the days when we were still, we were using 35 millimeter and Polaroids. And it's for the days of digital, but with Polaroids were really cool because you could snap and get an instantaneous, you know, captured image. And I'm steady, you know, we're gabbing back and forth, um, going going on and on. And here this woman is deceased on the sofa. We just, she had a heart history, all these other things. Son's out in the yard. And I take a photograph, and then I, I've got my gloves on. So I walk over, and I said, well, let me take a look at her, and then we can call the funeral home to come out and pick her up. Pulled up her gown, 
Julian, and she's lying so that her right side is against the back of the sofa, and she's lying like this. And I pulled up her nightgown. Um, she didn't have underwear on. No big deal. I mean, um, pull it up, and along the adjacent to the right breast, laterally oriented, what you have, you know, you you have intercostal muscles that uh, it's the meaty portion of your ribs. Um, all th- three of those ribs are completely separated and wide open. You could look through to the side and see her lung. She had been sliced open on the side. Her body. But there was no blood. Okay. Her body had been cleaned and redressed. And if I'd taken the time to pay attention to my job at that moment, Tom, I would have thoroughly searched the residence, gone back to the bedroom, found the blood-soaked towels and blanket that they had used to soak up all of the blood. I would have looked in the bathtub to see a little bit of ring of red, red substance around the drain before I ever opened my mouth by complaining about that I had to work that day. See, I am chief among sinners. Uh, I have made mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. Now, as it turned out, I was able to back the officer out of the room. I backed out. We called CID, came out, and perpetrator was soon caught. It was a local prostitute and her pimp that had done this. And this little old lady lived in this house. And you know, you know, when you're growing up in a neighborhood, you're around other kids. They're 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 there's always that that one elderly person many times that lives in an area that people will start rumors about and they'll say she she doesn't use a bank she keeps all of her money mm. and, and that's what they were working upon and they were able to get a conviction but you know and I could have train wrecked the whole thing how long from getting there on the scene to you finding that approximately was that to you pulling it up and finding that uh probably within I'd say probably about 35 minutes. Okay, so that's still pretty quick. So it, you... is, it is quick, but here's the problem. I didn't treat this like a homicide. I treated it like this this fellow's mother who has a heart right. history that just simply died. I did not take due care when I entered that scene. I took a half-ass approach to it. And that's the one thing you have to check yourself on constantly in our field because not every death, as we've stated, is the same. Everything's variable. I can't, you know, thinking back, I, I don't recall other than a series. I, I worked a series of serial killings, one of the series that I worked, um, particularly this was uh, a grouping in New Orleans where we had a uh, perpetrator that was redressing bodies. Um, but I've never had it to this extent where they went to the trouble to clean her, essentially bathe her with towels and wipe all the, get up all the blood and everything. And they left that there. And they left, yeah, they left it there and then redressed her into a nightgown. Seems like so much effort for like a really stupid mistake. Yeah. uh, The criminals are equally as stupid as I am on certain days. (laughs) (laughs) You're not giving yourself enough credit, but still. So that's, I mean, my question would be though, when you come upon that, I guess if she was redressed, that curbs the bleeding. But, like, 
is there if if someone had significant blood loss when they die as opposed to like oh they had a heart attack or something mm -hmm. does their body not look like a lot whiter or lighter in color than yeah it can that's an excellent question uh you can have uh you can have if you appreciate it long enough that is uh view it long enough and take a long enough view of the remains, and if you have the correct lighting, you might can appreciate kind of a, a washed out appearance. But again, um, there's a there's a pallor change that occurs anyway with the dead. Um, you know, they it, it's it 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 would be a very fine line that you would walk to try to assess that. Mm. Well, when when you tell a story like that, and and you highlight the point that like you're a human being, and so is everyone else doing these investigations. Mm -hmm. Like there are no matter how great you are, there are mistakes that are made. It does bring a, a, a few thoughts to mind. First, I don't know if the psychology of doing a job like yours or doing a job like being a surgeon, something mm -hmm. like that, where there's like, you know, life and death, like mm -hmm. shit's on the line. I don't know if that is like a hack to make you more focused. Whereas like if you are even if you're an accountant right mm -hmm. where numbers got to line up and everything you know you're an accountant you're going through the right. same return of someone that made a hundred thousand dollars last year the next person made 80 blah, 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 blah. you can make mistakes right mm -hmm. because yes. you can it's kind of more droning on did you the fact that you're facing like dead bodies and like this was a life and and you're highlighting that is that does that make you a lot more focused would you say like you understand what I'm asking there? Yeah, yeah, I, I do completely. Uh, probably not as much as you might think. Uh, somebody, uh, I would say that earlier on in my career, I had much more of an awareness of being with the dead than I did toward the end of my career. If that makes sense. Um, what do you mean by that? Uh, I'd be, I'd be, you know standing there over a dead body and trying to take the measure of everything that I'm seeing and thinking that I'm about to do to document the existence of this person. And it will be, I might be the, the only person that ever documents their existence or that they ever lived or that they died. And it would become more of a, almost, I hate to say this, it's even, it has more of a spiritual context to it where you're you're really focused on it in that sense as opposed to further on down my career I, I never got completely desensitized to the dead which I'm so thankful for but um, I did become more mechanical I think mm. uh, and I I didn't hold it quite as reverential as I may have at the beginning at the front end of my career do you find yourself or did you when you were actively doing this like how much did did you take it home with you? A lot, a lot. Yeah, yeah. To um, more so than uh, it, it was non compatible with life uh, completely. There were many times I would sit there and stare at my gun, many times um, over the course of my career, because um, I knew how to do it. <laughs> I'd seen it done so many times, and I, I just wanted to be freed from it. Um, and um, when it's a it's a weird thing, you sit there and you you try to make sense of these things that you see, and no one and there's nobody. People might you might have a casual conversation with someone, um, and 
they will ask you a question about what you have seen or did you work this case because they saw it in the news and this is back then, not now. And yeah, yeah, yeah I worked it. And they would say, wow, how'd you deal with that? What, what was that like? See, they're, they're not asking that question of me because they give two shits about me. They're living vicariously through me. Right. And that, that's something I learned early on. I remember being a, a very vain young man when I first got my job. I had no business doing the job that I was doing at the age that I was. And I'm talking mm -hmm. about in my very early 20s. I had a, an old forensic pathologist who's quite famous actually tell me that I was the youngest the youngest medical legal death investigator in America at that time. And um, and I, I don't know even how you would go about quantifying that. That's just something that he said. And and when you know he said it, because he'd been around so much, you know, it was kind of striking. And he may have just been trying to stroke my young ego, uh, threw me a few crumbs of kindness. Um, I remember distinctly going to a cocktail party in in New Orleans, uh, right off St. Charles Avenue, and uh, at this very wealthy, wealthy home. And uh, it got out at the party uh, about what I did for a living. And here are all these beautiful people around me. And I gather this crowd, and it's intoxicating stuff. You gather this crowd around you, um, and people are asking you about cases. You know, you could have somebody that's, say, for instance, a fabulously wealthy stockbroker uh, that might be there, and guy might be a multimillionaire, but I got stories about dead bodies, right. you know, and really over-the-top stuff, and so I'm holding court, right? You're the popular guy at the party. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm the popular guy. <laughs> and I, you ever... Have you ever been at that point in your uh, when when you're young and you lock eyes with some beauty across the across the room and there's just something there you see it and mm -hmm. there was this thing going on with the squirrel that I, I kept looking at her and she'd look at me and that sort of thing and I was holding court and as the evening came to a close um, these people walked away it, the crowd kind of parted. She eventually walked over to me and engaged me in conversation and said, what, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I, I'm an investigator with a coroner's office. I deal with mm. the dead. She didn't say another word. She turned on her heel and walked away. Really? Yeah. Woman did. Yeah. They're the ones into this shit. Uh, <laughs> you said that. I did not say that. But, you know, you know the thing about it is, is that, that many people will – They'll be very intrigued by it, uh, the nature of what you do, the things that you see. But if you're looking, if you're looking for somebody that wants to to hear your sad tale of woe, um, they don't have time for that. They're looking. They're looking for a story. They're looking for something. Hey, man, let me tell you. Something. You might you might think you've seen a thing or two. I was just talking to this guy over here. Let me tell you what he said. Let me tell you what he saw. And so they're getting information from you and they're going on. And here, you know, your your mind is in turmoil with everything that you're seeing and everything that you're experiencing day in and day out. And um, there's no there's no real respite for it. And I was such a knucklehead as, you know, very young uh, early on. I didn't see the early damage that was being done. Um, I think even at a spiritual level or at a, uh, you know, in, in between the ears with me, I, I just, I saw myself because of 
things that really impacted me as a child growing up. I saw myself as achieving something that no one else had achieved, that I was doing this day in and day out, that I had a skill set that no one could ever say that I had not done something with my life, that I was even at the at my own personal expense. And you can't see that when you're young. Um, I would go out and say, you know, you guys might do that for a living, but let me tell you what I'm going to go do tonight. Let me tell you what I did last night. Mm. You're not going to believe this. And somehow that kind of validates you, and you do that at your own peril. Like a gamesmanship with it a little bit. To Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. You, you might think you've seen a thing or two. Let me tell you what I've seen. Right. There, right. There's always somebody that's seen something more. You know, there's you never see everything. You talk about, like, your childhood, though. Yeah. And and insinuating that there were some tough things there. What What do you mean specifically, if you don't mind me asking? Um, I, I grew up in an environment, uh, where, um, I had teenage parents and there's nothing wrong with having teenage parents. Uh, particularly when I came up, that was very common. Um, my, uh, my mother was very young when she had me, my father, to say the very least was off the beam, as they say, um, had a tendency toward violence. Mm. Um, and uh, I could go into a lot of the, the gritty detail about that, even even what happened during my mother's pregnancy with me. But <clears throat> I survived. And um, um, I guess probably I was living primarily with my grandmother. Um, you never knew where my father was, uh, really. And when he showed up, he, you know, he showed up mean. And I guess I was five or six. Um and my father uh, came to my grandmother's house, which is his mother, drunk. And he showed up with a shotgun. And he said he was going to kill everybody in the house. My grandmother hid me beneath the bed. And one of my earliest memories was the the feeling that this was all going to end because I could look beneath, looking out uh, from beneath, you know, uh, grandmother's bed I could see her knees where she was praying and still remember her calling out to God to protect us and um, my grandfather had called back then called zero <laughs> there wasn't a 911 and the operator and uh, the uh, <clears throat> police came and uh, he was throwing furniture uh, he had a sawed off shotgun he was calling for his father, wanted to kill his father, wanted to kill all of us. He was banging at the doors and everything else. And you can imagine a child, you know, you... Six years old. Yeah. And it, it stayed with me. It still stays with me today. I'll bet. Um, so that was one of my first, I, I guess, I don't know if you could say it's a brush with death. Uh, I guess maybe some people I would. think it is, yeah. Um, they, they hauled him off at that point in time. And back then, during Vietnam, um, the I think this happened around the country quite a bit, they would give people a choice. They would say, all right, boy, you need to go to the penitentiary and join the Marine Corps. <laughs> <laughs> so he obviously had the skill set. <laughs> so he joined the Marine There's Corps. There's a lot of jokes coming to my head right now, and I'm backspacing all of them. <laughs> he he went off, and, of course, he came back, and he was even further more damaged than, than he had been previously. And, oh, my uh, God. Yeah, when he did get home, uh, you know, I love my grandmother dearly. I write about her uh, pretty significantly in in my in my memoir. And as a matter of fact, her brother, 
her oldest brother, who was a union leader in Louisiana, he ran the Painters Painters Local. Um, he was a homicide victim, and that's who I'm named after, as a matter of fact. So I've got this kind of lineage that goes back. Holy shit. <laughs> he was yeah. killed. Yeah, he was, he was a homicide victim 13 years before I was born. His name is Joseph. And, uh, and so I've kind of carried that, uh, you know, you kind of, I don't know, some people think they're marked in one way. It's, it's an interesting thing to consider. But jumping ahead, uh, my father got home from Vietnam uh, or from service, um, promptly grabbed my mother and I and removed us from the only home that I'd known in Louisiana and uh, took us to Georgia and kept us there. Uh, for, uh, we stayed there for probably a year and a half and then he abandoned us, left me and my mother to live in a, in a, in a trailer house there. We had no, nobody around us, had nothing living. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, it's, look, everybody's got a, somebody done somebody wrong song, you know, and everybody's got trials in their life. Mine are no greater than anybody else's, but I'm just trying to establish the fact that this, I think this is, this is one of the things that happened with me that kind of triggered in my mind that I was set on a course to do the job that I wound up doing. And when my mother remarried, she married a sadist and he was a sadist. He was a horrible human being and beat me unmercifully. And so that, you know, and he was, you know, he would constantly pound into my head that I was going to be just like my father that I was going to be. Christ. And so, you know, you go through, you go through these things and they form you. And my, my only goal first off was to escape, uh, to escape and to try to do better for myself. Cause I knew, I, I know guys that are my age that went through not the exact thing, but through terrible circumstances. And they, they wound up going down another road. Some of them are dead now. Uh, but for me, um, when I found something that, I could do where I could exercise, you know, what brains that I have and try to apply that through just hard nose application for some twisted reason in me, it, it validated me. It validated that I'd arrived. And so I just tried as hard as I could to be the best medical legal death investigator that I could. I, I read just incessantly. That's why I would go to autopsies all of the time I'd want to absorb and learn as much as I could because therein, you know, I, I thought that that kind of, you know, uh, therein rests my salvation, I think. And uh, it was it was to my great peril at the end of my career. Last time I left a medical examiner's office, as a matter of fact, was in the back of an ambulance. I'd been suffering from the same heart attack for six months. You had a heart attack? No, I didn't. It was panic attacks. I thought I was having a heart attack. I went to the doctor three separate times, and then finally I just collapsed. And they had to remove me, and I never went back after that in 2005. Um, and it was a horrible time. My wife was pregnant with Isaac at the time. Um, and I was finishing up my graduate degree in forensic science. I'll never forget that. When, when, did, when did Isaac pass away? Uh, Isaac passed away in five. He did. It, okay. all, it all happened at the same time. I'm sorry. He passed away in the fall of four. In the fall of four, I was officially separated from the Emmy's office in the February of five, I think. So this, you had a panic attack shortly after his death. Another one. Yeah. Another one. Multiple. Yeah. And they, you know, they, uh, and (laughs) when I went to see the, 
psychiatrist that the county had sent me to, um, first off, she she had a hard time taking a measure of where I was. She was uh, this lady that was older, uh, Indian lady uh, named Dr. Rao. I'll never forget her. She saved my life. Um, she said she she was in that stage in her career where early on she had she was old enough to have done and i found this interesting thing about my father uh she had done her uh her residency in washington state dealing with uh what they called uh, uh battle fatigue with incoming vietnam vets mm. and she and i was a quivering mass by this time i mean i um, I couldn't process things. All I wanted to do was get back to work. Um, and when um, I think it was the second meeting, she had put me on these really strong uh, psychotropic medications. I slept for days. She said, we have to give your brain a rest. I was like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> so they put me on this this medication that they normally use for schizophrenia. It's called Seroquel. And it's a, it's a horrible drug just to make me sleep. And... Uh, um, I think the second time I went back, I was trying to form the words to ask her about when I could go back to work. And she said, not only you're not going to back, go back to work, if you try to go back to work, I'm going to have you judicially committed. And when that hit me, this is all I'd ever done, Julian, since I was very young. You're like 20 very, years in at this point, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's all I'd known. And it's all I was. It was my sole identity in this environment. And that was just like the beginning. And it was within a few months of that that um, I was actually offered a academic position at my first stop along the way. And I remember thinking how terrified I was going into that classroom because here I was. I'd just gotten out of this mess dealing with dead bodies and <laughs> experiencing everything. I, and here I am. I'm going to go to this classroom and teach these kids about death because I started up the forensic science program at this college or forensic investigations program. What college was that again? University of North Georgia. Okay. As a, a concentration in forensics. And the funny thing about it is, is that it turned out to be therapeutic. I'll bet. Yeah. And because that doesn't I, surprise me at all. And I, I, found my, I found myself, I found myself advising students, uh, and I had a lot of uh, – North Georgia is one of the six senior military colleges in the nation. It's like VMI and the Citadel yeah, and Virginia yeah. Tech and Texas A&M, only it's strictly an Army college. As a matter of fact, it's in the same location where the Army Army Ranger Mountain Phase is. It's in Dahlonega, Georgia. And uh, I, <laughs> I had a lot of kids that were going through – I had kids that were coming in that were National Guard members. This was at the height of the war uh, that had done three and four deployments. And mm -hmm. I was seeing these kids coming in that had that thousand yards there. Yeah, they they did. And I remember actually, kids would come up to me and say, "Professor Morgan, I want to do what you did for a living." And I would find myself in my office talking them out of it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to do this. Let's find something else. You need to be a fingerprint analyst or something. You don't need to mess with the dead. Well, I you were telling a very deep and wildly twisted story there that I did not want to stop you on. I had a lot of questions along the way, so I want to unpack that a little bit. Yeah, if, sure. If you don't mind. First of all, when your father abandoned your family, did you ever see him again? Yes. Yeah. He he entered he tried to enter my life a couple of times and it turned out to be a complete train wreck. Um and being the uh 
uh, the people pleaser, I think is the way to put it, uh, that I was, I, I wanted to try to engage with him, but it, it always ended up in a, um, a very scary place. Even as an adult, you know, I wanted him to meet my children and that wound up being a very scary place to go to as well with them. And I'd realized suddenly that I'd put them in an environment with him, um, that was not healthy. And, um, so I've completely disengaged from that. Um, is he still alive? Uh, I think so. Yeah. And your mom? Oh yeah. Yeah. We have a pretty good relationship. I talked to her. We have a great relationship. As a matter of fact, I talked to her. She texted me when I got here wanting to know if I'd made it safe. Um, you're going up there to Philadelphia. Uh, <laughs> shout out to mom. Morgan. Hey mom. Uh, mom is city of brotherly love. Um, and you know, so yeah. Uh, but, uh, um, her, the man that she chose to marry is deceased now. And he also was, that was the next question. So he was, uh, you called him a sadist. That's a term I haven't really heard. I mean, I know what it is, but that's, that's a. He took great pleasure in the pain that he could inflict over and over again daily. Did he do it to your mom too? No. I always viewed myself as uh, kind of a, he got my mom who was absolutely gorgeous. Um, I described her in Blood Beneath My Feet as a. She had the skin of an English milkmaid, is pure white, um, uh, you know, untouched by the sun, blonde hair, you know, blue eyes, and uh, gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. And you know, I was just kind of a um, um, an adjunct, I think. And I think that there are a lot of kids out there that find themselves in that position. An uh, adjunct? Yeah, just something that. Uh, uh, happens to be there, you know, that may or may not serve a decent purpose. Because, uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, it's um, it's an interesting thing, uh, you know, when you think about it, uh, how people come in and out of your life. And you, you don't, you know, no kid asks for it. There's no kid out there that asks for, uh, you know, to come face to face with a monster. Um, and... Um, I, I tell you what it it did it it did do for me though um, is it really ingrained in me uh, kind of the George Costanza attitude. I was doing George Costanza before he was doing it on on air, where I was going to do the opposite. I I had focused in my life that, and I failed many times over, but I had focused in my life that if if there was something that was going to occur in my life. <laughs> this is how my my brain works. I would ask myself, you know how people walk around those bracelets to say, what would Jesus do? I had, uh, I had a, uh, in my mind, I had, you know, what would my father or my stepfather do? And then I would do the opposite. I would do the opposite. You know, how do you respond to your spouse? How do you respond to your children? How do you respond to other people? And so when I, I started applying that, I found out that it, it actually worked quite well. And it's very simplistic. It's kind of, it kind of, it's the way my mind works. You know, I, I mentioned uh, trying to eradicate the word "why" out of my lexicon. Um, if if I were to sit there all day long, and I've I've been guilty of it in the past, but to sit there all day long and say "why me, why me," uh, you you drive yourself to absolute madness. Do you still hold a lot of anger towards your father? 
or have you, I mean, he's not in your life, as you said, but have you forgiven him or would you want to forget? Like, how how do you, how do you treat that relationship? I don't know. I think that, I think that probably from just, uh, again, I go back to what's going to be at this stage in my life and the stage of my, my life, the stage of, of life that my family is in right now, what does it profit? What does it profit us from a health standpoint, mental health standpoint, to reengage at any point in time? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not saying reengage. Mm-hmm. I'm saying for your own peace mm-hmm. without seeing him, without bringing him towards your family or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that something that, like, do you have that anger or are you at at peace with the fact that he exists and this is what he was and you have righteously lived your life to be everything that that's not in a great way and I, so I, you got yeah. something from it. For yeah, yourself. I think so. I, I I don't have near the level of anger that I once had I, um, toward him. I, I think that this other person, um, even though he's dead and gone, uh, I have a lot of anger toward that individual. Um, still? Uh, still to this point. And I, I think that uh, many years later, uh, it, you know, we uh, we found out that um, that um, he had been previously um, uh, treated in a psychiatric hospital, <laughs> and he had hidden it uh, from everybody. Had lost his his first marriage as a result of that, and uh, tried to understood uh, tried to understand, you know, why. And he was hyper religious too. And try to understand, you know, why did he hate psychiatrists so much? He would go on and talk about that they were the, you know, the devil's tools and all these sorts mm. of things all the time. And you know, anytime somebody makes a big stink out of something like that, there's something they're projecting. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, you know, it it started to make sense many years later, you know, retrospectively. But that still doesn't, um, it still doesn't uh, heal any of those wounds. Um, I'm just glad we're all shut of him now. Well. I, I think, and I'm just live putting two and two together here as best I can. Because when when I sit in the seat and I have special people like you come in here who just, you know, really, no pun intended, spill their guts with, with how they feel and, and shoot it to you straight, which I've been very lucky. I've had a lot of people who do that. So I, I appreciate you doing that. But, yeah. you know, I'm constantly just naturally, psychologically trying to evaluate, you know, what, mm-hmm. where people are coming from and, and why. And I think... I don't know, I could be wrong about this, but you choosing the career you did to prove your point and make something of yourself, which you did, obviously. You 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 didn't go to Wall Street though. You didn't you didn't go like start a business. No, you, you know, didn't wow. You, you didn't go Thanks for telling me, Julian. Wow. <laughs> like like Retro- you, <laughs> you didn't do these like like the normal right, you know, right, yeah. run of the mill, like I'll show you, you know. Yeah. You didn't like become a great basketball player. You went and Hey, how do you know? Well, I don't. I know you're a big fan. I can I'm, I can knock the tray down, man. Uh, still, Thursday. <laughs> oh yeah. You ran it I'm like just Curry? kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> but like, you didn't take one of the more like stereotypical Hollywood paths. You went and you learned how to how to assess what happened to the dead to provide the story of of someone who was taken. And I can't help but think about having not done it myself at all, but like imagining the situation when you are sitting. 
in a room with a dead body, even if they obviously have next of kin and the next of kin are sad they're gone and you've already informed them or are going to go inform them, that body right there has a story. Mm-hmm. And let's go the homicide or suicide route. Mm-hmm. Something happened to them that only they know right now. And so in a way, and they're not here to tell you, and they don't have right. any choice in the, in, in the matter. So in a sense, their soul has been abandoned. Right. And you are there to re-sew them back together in a way that will provide some sort of, not closure like you said, but some sort of understanding of what happened to this person. You are there, you and, and the coroner and the detective, that team is the last group of individuals who has not abandoned what is now a dead person. And I can't help but think it, that a part of that psychologically could come from the fact that whether you were alone under a bed staring at your dad trying to kill your whole family or getting beat by your stepdad while your mother couldn't do anything about it after your your real dad had abandoned you twice over, going to Vietnam slash prison and then leaving the house altogether. I can't help but wonder if there is a piece of you that is that is trying to make that right with with your maker or the universe or whatever you want to say. I, I think to a certain degree, potentially – I love Johnny Cash. Mm. Love Johnny Cash. And I love <laughs> even as a small boy, I loved I loved the song A Boy Named Sue. Um and the reason is and it's a comedy song, but it's really not. Um everything that I went through was much akin to that that storyline that Cash wrote about uh in that song where he, he was given this name. And, you know, at the end, at the conclusion, when he's telling the story, you know, he's able to say, uh, the father's saying, it's because I knew I wasn't going to be there and gave you this name and mm-hmm. that you would have to grow up tough. And for me, the I was I was given this gift to a certain degree of, uh, I don't know how to say it, this degree of, um, of uh, I guess in my case, uh, abandonment and abuse and these sorts of things, because I could go into these environments for a time and I could look at some of the most horrible things you can imagine. And I could say, it's still in him. I can do this. It's still in my stepfather. I can do this. Mm. Uh, and it would in some way it would measure out for me. Um, it, it, it was never quite enough because you can never escape death. You, you think that you can. I certainly thought that I could. And, you know, kind of the, the icy fingers, as they say, you know, it, they, they go everywhere. No one can avoid it, the reality of it. But you, you think you can. And in my case, I kind of danced around it a lot. And I accomplished a lot of great things that I'm very proud of, um, relative to you know my time as a as a medical legal death investigator um i think back uh, when i got into the field um there were no national standard guidelines that were used to train people in my field and as a result of a guy named um dr uh, dr jensen who was the chief medical examiner of uh, milwaukee and he's actually a guy that did all of the autopsies on Dahmer's victims. Mm-hmm. He understood that there was a need to standardize national practice 
for people in my field. And so from him, we formed what was called the Milwaukee Task Force. There were 12 of us. Atlanta, New Orleans, I won't get them all. Atlanta, New Orleans, Nashville, New York, D.C., Chicago, L.A., Seattle, uh, Vegas wasn't there. I can't remember. There's, there was 12 of us. And we started meeting in Milwaukee to try to come up with a way to do training mm. for medical legal death investigators. And we started before the days of, uh, of PowerPoint. And um, you would use index cards. And we would just come up with random ideas. And they'd be glued all on these walls. I mean, just covered. And we met for a period of two and a half years. We literally created a text that way. And now, um, as a result of what we did there, the American Board of Medical Legal Death Investigators exist. And it's wow. a, a registry certification and a, a cool. fellowship certification that they have. I'm no longer, you know, because I'm not practicing, I'm no longer, a, I'm inactive. But that's something forever and ever, you know, that, that I'll be proud of. And to be able to go around and I've trained coroners all over the country and um, still get to have the privilege of, of trying to make sense out of the nuttiness that we see in the news. And one of the reasons, you know, obviously, you know, I'm not complete altruist here, obviously. Um, I have my own motivations for having my own podcast and going on air and everything else. But um, I saw a need that I'm this phase of my life that the way I try to do my podcast is I, I try to pretend that, first off, I'm having a conversation with a friend. Yes. And secondly... I'm trying to teach. Uh, it's it's what I have a somewhat in my little field a gift for you know to be able to talk about these horrible things that I'm born witness to and what kind of practical application can you take away from it? Mm. And you know the when I came up with body bags, um, the idea for the podcast it's it's merely an extension of what I do in the classroom. Yeah. My wife actually came up with a name for it. So, wife's smart. That She's a great very, name. She is very smart. And uh, the reason that we settled on that name is that body bags, and some people have found it offensive. To, but everybody finds everything yes, offensive. They'll so, find something. You know, Can't you know, worry about it. God. But <clears throat> the reason body bags is is the is the name is that. That's one of the ways I used to keep count of how many deaths I'd, I'd worked because our vehicles mm. were all stocked with body bags. And so as as the number of body bags would become diminished in the vehicle, you'd have to go back and restock. And for each body bag that, that you use, that represents one person. Yeah. And each person that we talk about um, – each person that we talk about on uh, on body bags was was a person. They have loved ones that are left behind at some level, and they sustained horrific trauma. Uh, and you know, I I feel like that at least in my little way, I can be trusted to try to interpret that and try to help people in the true crime community understand it. Agreed. And and once again, as I said at the outset of our conversation, like you do an amazing job of keeping the priorities and, and the gravity of the situation at the forefront at all times, which is really, really important. But you talk about how the second half of your career here, where, where you become a professor and then yeah. later on a, a big-time media personality on all this stuff, it seems to be very rewarding, and that's why it wasn't surprising to me for you to say, like, I found it early on, like, therapeutic for myself mm -hmm. to go through this. But... You you seem to have made the transition obviously very well and effectively, but that 
transition point where it happened, which you talked about, is that it's at a very curious place because you've been in the in at, in this job for two decades. I think you'd said you'd done two thousand notifications mm-hmm. at this point, and then at at some point, obviously, you're not desensitized to it as we've already laid out, but you you're used to this job you you have you have an understanding like we have a job to do our our job is to tell a story here and get it done but as you also laid out it does come home with you and you do have heaviness and there there are so many times today where you were just on a roll and i didn't want to stop you so (laughs) i'm jumping back on something so forgive me for that but you had said something about you were getting these panic attacks because for the first time you were like acknowledging or maybe not the first time I'm trying to remember exactly how I said it but you were like acknowledging what you were doing and it was also coming at a high stress point for you do you think it was it wasn't so much like you had never like you had never acknowledged it but you understood what you were doing but you just kind of accepted it and now for the heaviest time of all when you started getting these panic attacks you were weighing the gravity of that, and that's what you were acknowledging. No, I think it was my body responding to it. I, I truly do because I was too thick-headed to understand where I could I, – I was still – you know, my mind was still willing to dra- to drag my bloody stumps through the meat grinder of this thing, but my body was shutting down. It, it's just – it's at a certain point where, um, you know, where you – you understand what you're involved in finally after um, after some woman you'd never met in your life tells you she's going to have you judicially committed. And then all of a sudden it's like that was the first shock to my system. I realized yeah. that, you know, because my total identity was tied up in this thing. I mean, it really was. And there's no reason. You know, I would have been better, you know, renting umbrellas, you know, down on the beach somewhere. You know, how, how cool would that have been? I couldn't see that back then. That was beneath me because that, that doesn't, you know, arise to the same level as being a death investigator. Really? What's more valuable, dude? You know, your life, uh, you know, who you are, your, your precious children, your wife. This, And, you know, and you talk about bringing it home, you know, and it's, again, it's, it's things that, you know, with people that are involved in these various fields, you know, you, you've talked to, oh, my God, the people that you've, you've engaged with, the, the folks that are in their lives and, and mine, my wife in particular, can you imagine being married to a man that when he comes home from work, you meet him at the back door of the house every day, and the question that she asks you is, how was your day? It was not, how was your day? It's, did you work a decomp? And then she says, if you did, go ahead and take your clothes off right here. And I take my clothes off <laughs> in the backyard. And you leave them there, there at the door. And then while she's taking care of the household, she's taking care of your kids, she's washing your filthy clothes that just the day before you were in some rundown shabby old hotel or boarding house or beneath a house where you had to dig up somebody that had been buried or you were in some shooting gallery with a bunch of junkies that had or you know had murdered one of their fellow um, uh, you know drug addicts you do bring that home with you you know and it it impacts it impacts everything that you do 
I think one of the the really sad things about it, you know, I, I remember to uh, right at the end, end is that <clears throat> this is this is really pathetic. Um, we worked um, for a while. We we worked ten hour shifts, so four days a week, ten hours. And ten hour shifts, not a ten hour shift, because catch case, you're going to be, <laughs> right? You're going to be the fourteen, you know, whatever. Right. And I remember, can you imagine this? So you've worked four four days, you've put in a lot of hours, you live sixty miles away from the office, so you got to commute too. So you're spending about that much time with your family, and then the moment that you you've got your keys in your hand, you're walking toward the door to go outside to get in your car. You know what would suddenly inhabit my brain at that moment in time when I sat down. It was not, oh boy, I'm going to go home and see my wife. It's, I've got to be back here in 72 hours. And that's all you focus on. You never get out of that. I didn't. Mm. I can't say about anybody else. This is just my little slice of pie. You never get out of that that state that you're in. Um. Because you just don't you don't have the tools. I didn't have the tools to deal with it at that time, um, and there was no care. My my wife um, at the time PTSD was not something. It was out there and people talked about it, but it was a couple of years later when it really burst on the right. forefront when they got the diagnosis from the psychiatrist that this was PTSD. My wife went to talk to the county where I was employed in Atlanta. And, you know, here she is. She's dealing with a pregnancy with a, an infantile husband at this point. Um, and she's looking to get disability. And the people that she spoke with at the county actually said, yeah, he's not going to get disability for PTSD. Too many people can fake it. And so, you know, you're, you know, if you're looking for a sign as to, well, maybe this is, you know, evidence that you're going to have to, Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, Morgan, and do what you got to do as a man and provide for your family in another way. You know, you got you got to leave this behind. There's a couple of ways you can look at it. You can get a, be a sad sack about it and sit around and woe is me, or you can you can stand up and start putting one foot in front of the other. And it was hard, man. It was hard stuff. Um, but you know, um, uh, everybody has hard times. Everybody does. Nobody yeah. gets out of this unscathed. Well, your hard time is also coming. It, it sounds like I, I haven't asked specifically, but your your son Isaac was relatively newborn. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. When when he passed, it's about a day old, I guess. Okay, so that's that's like, I mean, I've never had kids, but I I know this. That's like the worst thing that can happen to somebody is having to bury a child. So that is a significant traumatic event for anyone. Yeah, and it was all layered. It was, it was all layered. right on top. Yeah, but all occurring at the same time. You had said really early on in our podcast, and I mean, I didn't even know what to say to it because it was very, very heavy. But you said when he passed in your arms, you notified yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm just thinking about that because that is when this all, you know, perfectly understandably so. That's when this all kind of came came to the 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 forefront where you started really having panic attacks and, and your career gets threatened actually by having to deal with, with people saying, Hey, you can't be on this job. But when, when you say you, you notified yourself, what, what did, 
I mean, I could imagine what you meant by that, but take me to that moment. What What is that? Do you say out loud? The scientist and myself looked down at that little baby, and I validated at that moment in time without anybody else telling me that he was, in fact, deceased. And I knew it at that moment in time as I held him and I looked at him. And I remember looking at my wife as she was weeping in bed and telling her, he's gone. And I handed him over to her and we wept. I still wept today. Still weep today. I still weep on his birthday every year, 24th September. There's not a day that goes by because there's part of me that thinks that what I put our family through relative to the stress and the strain and everything that was upon my wife, that in some way um, it impacted. It impacted our trajectory. Um, But I learned more, I think, in that moment, I guess. First off, I learned very carefully, be careful, and this is an old adage, be careful what you ask God for. Remember, I said that when... um, I talked about wanting to extend mercy to people when I went out and did notifications. That someday it'd be extended to me and mine, and as it turned out, I was the one that was going to have to send <clears throat> extend mercy to myself in a weird way. It was, uh, you know, in the world's that way. Uh, I found uh, at this stage in my life, um, you you learn these lessons along the way, and they don't necessarily come back to you like they, like you think that they they like in your mind. You think that they should or would or or whatever. You, you learn these little lessons along the way, and that was certainly a lesson for us that we learned that day. Um, particularly me, I'm the one that truly needed to be schooled in that area. I needed to be humbled. Um, you know, because, look, it's one thing to sit around and complain about how bad you were treated as a child, but at some point in time, you have to put put aside childish things, and uh, as horrible as it might be, and accept that you are a man, and set your face like Flint, and you move on, and you do what you have to do for your family, and that's that was the position, and I'm glad I just, you know, I, I truly am, I'm so thankful that I just didn't sit down in the middle of the metaphorically in the middle of the damn road of life and just weep incessantly. I'm glad that there was something within me that just pulled myself up and and moved on and was able to, you know, to prove to myself, I think, that I, you know, that I was something more than, you know, just a medical legal death investigator. I became a better husband, a better father, and um, I became a, um, a better and maybe a better employee, um, whatever that means. But certainly I've, I've tried real hard to perfect perfect my craft as a professor and as an expositor, I think, on air um, relative to these things that, that, you know, people see on television, they kind of gloss over them and, you know, um, a lot of the folks that sit at home and they they view this as entertainment, and it is, it is, uh, you know, true crime. They they they're looking 
to that to escape the life that they have. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're looking for something else, and they don't need to be insulted. I'll never forget. You know, when I first appeared on HLN, it was early on. <clears throat> Matter of fact, it might have been my first hit that I did with them. Um, had a producer that came up and said, "I know you're nervous." She says, "But you teach." She says, "Just pretend you're teaching and mm-hmm. pretend that you're teaching to." Um, pretend that you're teaching um, 11-year-olds that are in special ed. That's how she said it? Yes. It's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, it was. And I found that very, it was, you know, suddenly the the lights of the studio, the you know, that you get, you know, when you walk in that environment, suddenly it becomes a bit more dim at that point in time. Yeah. You realize that, you know, uh, the blush is off the rose, as they say. Uh, but uh, I, I use that as an opportunity to try to to talk to everyday people about these, you know, the you know these higher level scientific constructs to try to break them down so that everybody can understand them. And you know, and I think a bigger hope is that um, by explaining some of the science behind forensics, forensics is a great way for people to understand practical scientific application because it is applied science. So there's multiple ways in which it can be applied. People that are terrified that have always been told that they're no good in math or they don't understand physics because it seems so complicated or chemistry or, or even biology to a lesser extent. Um, you know, that through practical demonstration as opposed to like in the academic sense where it's theoretical demonstration types of things. Uh, forensics is something that they can grasp. You know, when you begin to talk about drug panels and you begin to talk about, um, uh, you start talking about bullet trajectories and all those sorts of things. And you talk, start talking about the mass and of, of rounds and velocity and all those sorts of things. Suddenly you have something that's tangible you can right. demonstrate to them. And something might click. You never know. Yeah. Well, you're doing you're doing an amazing job with it, and and your career has these two clear acts to it, and I think I think that's a that's a really cool thing to bring it full circle. And and once again, I, I as I said before, I'm I'm always I'm always very grateful when when people really go there and 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 open up with things, and you've done that significantly today. So I I, I think that in addition to the expertise that you're providing and can provide so many people to be a good voice for this space, if that's what you want to call it, you know, putting a human face behind that is always so important because people can see, you know, you're not, you're not a robot who shows up to a crime scene and says, all right, let's assess the evidence. You know, you're, you're a living, breathing human with a hell of a backstory, if I might add. And, and I think it's, I think it's an awesome thing that you have clearly have such a great family have a great marriage too. Heard you talking to your wife earlier. Here, you weren't even away from her for like three hours. You know that's that's a great thing, and and it gives a lot of people out there hope to see the strength and, and courage that you can have because it's not like, you know, the two of you haven't haven't endured some awful things. To say nothing of also the things that you endured growing up. I mean, it's to to be the type of guy you are with the personality. I think. You talk about proving people wrong through a job. I think you've proved pe- people wrong through your life and, and mm-hmm. how you live it and how you treat people. And I, I, I think that that's, that's the best thing you, you could be as a person. I'm not God or anything, but that's, that's certainly something. Like I would, I would 
when I have kids one day, I would want my kids to be like Joseph Scott Morgan. I mean, oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> you're, you're a great guy. Well, thank but you, this, this has been a lot of fun for me. I know i got to get you out of here in a few minutes to, to get you to your flight. But before we do end this one, the question that's been lingering in my head all day and I've avoided asking it is probably one of the more obvious ones to ask a guy like you. So it's a little cliche, but nonetheless, I'm curious about your answer. Do you fear death? Yes. Yeah, I'd, I'd be a fool to say that I didn't. I, I don't. I fear it from the perspective of what it's going to do to my family. That's what mm. I fear about it. Um, um, I, I I know what it's like to be laying in a bed and gasping for air like a fish up on a dock because I thought that I was dying, and that's the way this anxiety related to PTSD works. Um, I have such a good life. I do. I, I do. I mean, I think about where I came from as a child. The odds of me getting to the point that I'm at right now are astronomical. Um, and I'm very grateful for what I have. And it, it's made me all the more thankful that every single morning that I get up, I've got a son that's going to call me sometimes irritatingly frequently, but I never, I never deny his call. And a wife that has been through the worst of it with me, because we were a partner through all this. She yes. said that I was not going to let you go. I was not going to let you slip off. And she said that she knew the moment when something had turned in me. She saw it. It was like the spark of life had left my eyes. There was a, you know, she talks about this um, abiding loneliness that just kind of overtook me. And it was this, um, this thing that uh, that just kind of haunted me day in and day out. And she witnessed that. And she said that she would cry every night when I would leave for work because she knew that there was nothing she could do to assuage that. And I would come home and I would tell her, you know, about these horrible cases. And, and this is a sad thing. And the thing that I... I hate that I did to her. She says to not be regretful about this, but I hate what I subjected her to by virtue of what I told her about what I saw. Mm. Um, because the things that, that I saw, she should never have been exposed to, period. End of story, end of paragraph. Um, because they were horrible things, but I, I had no one else to share them with, and that's what she says she signed on for, and I'm so grateful for it. Um, because she, she was that, <laughs> um, it's cliche to say rock, but she really was. She was that, um, that, that anchor in the storm in the Harbor, you know, she was that, that lighthouse for me that I could hold on to and know that, you know, everything was going to be okay. Um, that it, it, it would, it, that it's a passing storm. And sometimes the storm just seems like it lasted forever and ever and ever, but the clouds finally broke. Um, and I'm, I'm so thankful for that. But yeah, I guess I'm sorry. I didn't mean to go down this rabbit hole. With no, this is I, great. I just, I, I just, yeah, I, I don't fear death um, as much as I fear what it will do to my family. I think hopefully. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that, again, this comes back to this theme of living a good life. I think if you live a good life and you're truthful and you're kind, um, there's nothing else you can do, Julian. There, there's nothing else. There's nothing else that 
the good Lord above could expect out of you other than that. Um, and uh, I've done my best to be that at this point to try to make up for what uh, for what my family, you know, had to see and, you know, the sadness and the distance in my eyes. And I'll, I'll leave you with a real quick story to give you <laughs> to kind of frame it for you. I, I was so acutely aware of death uh, when my kids were little, my girls in particular, that there was one occasion. My daughters brought this up to me on several occasions. And it's weird being a death investigator's child. Uh, she she said, "Do you remember that time that we were at the restaurant and you you had ordered us all steak, and we were so happy to have steak, and Mama had cut the steak up from me, and suddenly you began shouting at us, telling us to chew our food because." that you had worked a case of an eight-year-old girl that had choked to death on a piece of steak. So chew your food. Mm. That's how it impacts you. What person in their right mind would say that to their child? You know, um, I don't know. but It comes from the, it comes from the right place, though. It's not like, it's not a bad thing. It, it's, know, it's not a reaction. It's but... not a bad thing, but it's just, it's a, a thing that's rooted in fear. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that she didn't choke on her steak. I truly, <laughs> truly. Me too. I truly am. Well, that's that's that was a great, great answer to that. I really, really enjoyed this, and I definitely would like to do this again because there is there are so many questions today that I went unasked because I didn't want to stop you. you know, oh, you're, yeah. You're, telling a, you're an amazing speaker and a great storyteller, and I think, I think people will really appreciate hearing what you have to say. So thank you for doing it. Thank and you. And look forward to having you up here again. You bet, bud. All right. Everybody else, you know what it is. Give it a thought. Get back to me. Peace.